podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. We have an incredible guest today, one of my personal heroes, the legendary Jim Shooter. I can't believe he's here, but we're going to get to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. If you go there, please follow us. That helps get the word out. All this positive information, all these great stories, it gets out to more people, spreads and spreads and spreads, and we're raising the vibration of humanity. Spotify, follow us there. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts, please click the button that connects you with me forever. (laughs) And the most important thing, of course, is tell a friend. Tell a friend that you know that loves these type of podcasts, that loves these conversations. You know them well. You're their friends. Tell them about Midnight on Earth. Bring them here, midnightonearth.com. All right. So today, ladies and gentlemen, we have one of my personal heroes, one of the greatest comic book writers and comic book personalities of all time. Some people say would say legend, but I would say even more so architect, cornerstone, force even a fundamental part of american comic books much like will eisner jack kirby and stan lee so let me read his bio really quick and we will get into our interview jim shooter is an american writer editor and publisher for various comic books he started professionally in the medium at the age of 14 at what is now dc comics and he is most notable for his legendary 1978 to 1987 run as Marvel Comics ninth editor-in-chief and his work as editor-in-chief and creator of Valiant Comics. He was also both the creator and editor-in-chief of Defiant Comics and Broadway Comics. During his tenure at Marvel, the company enjoyed some of his best successes. He believed that every title, no matter how unpopular it was, deserved a chance to succeed. He abandoned the longtime Marvel Comics policy that allocated the best writers to the best-selling titles. This allowed some of the second-string titles, such as the Uncanny X-Men and Daredevil, to reach then unprecedented heights of popularity. Also, he worked to secure creators' rights, return artwork to their creators, and other industry innovations. After leaving Marvel, he fronted an effort to purchase the publisher from its corporate ownership losing out at the last minute to a slightly higher bid. He then founded a new company, Voyager Communications, which published comics under the Valiant Comics banner. And Valiant entered the superhero market with a relaunch of the gold key comics character Magnus Robot Fighter and also brought Solar and Turok to the fold. Shooter brought many of Marvel's creators to Valiant, including people like Steve Ditko and Barry Windsor Smith, and also industry veterans such as Art Nichols, John Dixon, and Don Perlin. Jim also founded Defiant Comics in 1993, Broadway Comics in 1995, with many other positions, gigs, and comics written between then and today. 
Jim, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. My pleasure. We have so much to talk about. You're such an incredible force and, and power in the comic books industry because you, you were there so early on. And like we said in your bio, you got your first gig at the age of 14. Really, it was 13 well, that you were sending in scripts. Is that correct? Yeah, the f first scripts that I, I wrote and they got published, uh, I, I wrote uh, when I was 13. And then they, but I, they actually, uh, the first check arrived when I was 14. So I don't know what, how you figure it. But anyway, you know, Roy, <laughs> Roy, Roy, says, Roy says I was 13. So, okay. Right? Roy I, Thomas is the greatest historian, so I, I believe him. Yes, I, I think that's pretty impressive to be 13 and working in comics professionally. When I was 13, I was actually purchasing the comics that you were creating professionally. And they were amazing and they were life-changing oh, for me. But what was it like being 13, being around the energy of these hardcore original comic creators? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I really had a, a who's who of, of people. I mean, my, my first published story uh, was drawn by uh, Shelley Moldoff, who was one of the original Batman uh, artists. He was, you know, uh, the way back, he's the golden age. Uh, after that, I was working with uh, great people, the legends, the Hall of Fame grandmasters uh, like Kurt Swan, Gil Kane, Wally Wood, um, uh, you know, great inkers, Jack Abel, George Klein, uh, uh, Al Plastino, um, I, the, 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 the list goes on. And then I, more of them, when I got to Marvel, I worked with, you know, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Steve Ditko. When I say work with them, I mean, I worked with them. I was on the phone with Jack Kirby uh, 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 almost five hours a week for, for uh, two and a half years, you know. Uh, and, and so I got to know the people. Steve Ditko, I, I brought him back to Marvel. And then he, uh, he later worked for me at the other companies. Um, uh, I had Don Perlin, you know, who was, you know, was great guy and then like you, you named some of the other guys like some sure. of the old guys and i got to know will eisner and and you know i mean i, I and i knew more guys I, I met terry robinson i i knew joe simon went to lunch with him sometimes i'm sure you knew everybody course, being at that yeah. time you know being in the 70s yeah well i was the youngest the kid you know I, the thing is they were all like you know i don't know like 40 50 and i was 13 you know so uh i i i uh no, I had lots of time to meet everybody. But did it and seem did. like they were superheroes themselves? I, they, they, every one of them was amazing in his own way. I mean, um, you know, it, it, everybody knows about Jack. I mean, just like a, a just a fountain of ideas, and 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 one of the most creative people ever. I'm, you know, forget comics ever. And, uh, you know, and then Stan, I don't know why, but people keep trying to like, uh, make out like, uh, you know, tear him down. Like, Oh, well, he, he wasn't that important. Yes, he was. I worked with him. I worked with Jack. I worked with Steve. Trust me. He was the guiding light. But, uh, um, you know, I mean, nobody needs to pad Steve Ditko's resume. Nobody needs to pad Jack Kirby's resume, you know? Right. It's, it's, and so, so don't, don't take anything away from Stan, but, but, uh, you know, and, and I learned a lot from all those people. I listened to every word they said. And, um, yeah, it was like being surrounded by gurus, you know. Yeah, I'm sure it really felt that way because it was yeah. so intense. And they were really, a lot of the guys that you named, like you said, the Golden Agers, they were the ones that really created the American comic book field that kind of mutated out of the newspaper strips and things like that. 
Yeah, yeah, they did. They they, uh, they created it. It was uh, it was all new. I mean, they were inventing it on the fly, and um, you know, and and, and uh, I hope people appreciate that. I, you know, I think like, they yeah, do. Sometimes they'll look at they'll look at a book and they'll say, "What's well, old fashioned or something?" Yeah, it was revolutionary when it came out. You know, uh, but but uh, you know, time passes and it's like Stan stuff. I mean, when I started reading uh, Marvel comics back in the early sixty one. You know, I mean, had Spider-Man laundering his costume. I never saw that. You know, everything was new. It was all different. And now, you know, every every character, you know, they have colds. They have to pay the rent. They, you know, and like he, he made that he made that standard. You know, and now everybody does it. And yeah, he brought a fine. dimension of realism to the comic book field that wasn't necessarily yeah. there before. It was very abstract. If you think of DC comics and you know there were places that weren't real like Metropolis and Gotham City and yet here was Marvel that had real cities essentially the world outside your window yeah but then the thing is um, that uh, when when Stan uh, did that stuff like I said it was it was revolutionary because you think about what the other companies were doing I mean, Superman is cutting the ribbon at bridge openings, you know, and, 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 and you know, Superman is, I, remember, I went to a meeting one time when I was in Stone High School and I was up at the DC's offices, and apparently there were several meetings like this. I happened to be around for one of them, and it was, wasn't a big one. It was just the smallest few people sitting around a table, and there's Marvel Comics all over the table, and they're trying to figure out why Marvel was kicking their ass, you know, and, and they, they had all kinds of theories. Um, uh, one guy thought at one time, uh, this didn't all come out at the same meeting, but one guy at one time thought, well, Marvel uses more garish coloring. And so they had uh, more Weisinger and other editors were actually running color in the panel gutters to try to make it more garish looking, you know. And then and then somebody came up with the idea, well, hey, this Steranko guy seems to be doing all these funny shaped panels and stuff. So they tried to force Kurt Swan to do slanty panels and stuff. And none of that, I could have told him, that's not it. <laughs> that is not it. It's, it's, Stan always used to say, it, you know, heroes with problems. Because, because Stan learned to speak in sound bites. He got interviewed so many million times, you know. And, and so he just had his little collection of sound bites that people liked. And I, I corrected him once, you know. I said, no, Stan, it's, it's, it's heroes with lives, you know. Um, he knew. I mean, he knew what he was doing, uh, and and uh, uh, it was really, you know, uh, remarkable that, that that he could do that and everything. And so, you know, you read the interviews. Like I say, it's 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 sort of, you know, interviews speak uh, sometimes. Um, but but Stan, it was he's he was a genius, I and mean, he he did some amazing things. Meanwhile, at DC Comics, you know, it's like at that same meeting I was telling you about. They were holding up comics, Marvel comics. And then one guy says, uh, uh, he says, uh, I think it was Haney, I'm not sure. But he, he said, he said, look at this. He says, they got two pages of this of Spider-Man talking to his aunt. He says, the kid's going to be bored out of their minds. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, we're not, you know. <laughs> and uh, another guy was showing a, a, a full page shot of the angel flying and talking about how the glory of flying, right? And he says, this is stupid. He says, Superman flies all the time. What's the big deal? And I said, exactly. If he doesn't think it's a big deal, why should we? You know, they, it didn't seem like they really understood that extra dimension well, being, of emotion. No, no. And being the kid in the room, I kept my mouth shut. You know, <laughs> I didn't want to get in trouble. 
Well, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm, you know, a, a teenager. I'm, I'm like 15 or something at that point. And, and uh, I'm not going to weigh in. These are, these are big shots at DC. Uh, and, and, you know, I, but that's, they were wrong headed. And, and, uh, I was doing a Legion of superheroes book, adventure comics featuring Superboy and the Legion of superheroes. And, um, and, uh, I tried to do a pale imitation of Stan. I mean, in those days, I just, I thought, well, you know, I got the only book set in the future, I'm not bothering anybody, you know? So I own the future. So, uh, um, I started trying to do continuity and trying to, trying to do a little more character like Stan did, you know, sort of like I said, very pale imitation. Right. But, deeper uh, characterization. Uh, yeah. Well, but anyway, the thing is at that time in the sixties, all DC titles, all the sales were falling and Marvel was taking off and they, that's why they had these meetings. They couldn't figure it out. And, and my book adventure being a pale imitation of Stan, um, it, it, the first issue of mine was published out of, out of one of those postal statements of ownership that told you um, what the circulation was. And they, they had to publish this once a year to keep their second-class mailing privileges. So in my first book, it said that the Legion of Superheroes was selling half a million copies a month. Wow. Right? In the last issue I did, when all of the DC titles were falling, my, they, they had a postal statement of ownership and it said it was selling 500,000 a month still at the last so, issue. So my, you know, the, so the, 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 the kid held his own yeah. and everyone else was plunging, you know? And, uh, 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 you know, the, the thing is, uh, uh, those days sales were a lot better. I mean, you know, everybody, Oh yeah. Th- things have definitely changed that. It seems like today a successful comics print run is around 10,000. Yeah. I mean, that's sad. It's, it's so sad. very I I, sad. I think when I was at Marvel, I think our average was 300,000 an issue for all the books. Yeah, which yeah. would be considered an astronomical success these days. Yeah, and then thoughts it was, you know, everyone there was nothing except the DC people were jealous. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So you moved on from DC and you became editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics right. at 27 yep. years old. Is that right? I think so. Right. And that's very young, I feel like. 1978. To be, yeah, so it's very young to be spearheading a major publisher like that. What was that like for you at such a young age? Well, uh, I don't know if you've read my blog and talk about some of, some of what went on back then, but, but basically I'd been the associate editor for two years. I started in January 76. And then January 78, I became the editor-in-chief. And during those two years when I was associate editor, Marvel had really fallen into disrepair. I mean, Stan hadn't been involved with the comics for years. And um, uh, the, the kind of nobody was running the ship. Uh, the, the, the editors-in-chief before me, I'm meaning no disrespect, but they were not business people. And they didn't have any training like that. And they were sort of head writers is what they were. Okay. You know. Um, uh, I mean, Roy Thomas is one of the smartest people I'll ever meet, and he could do anything, you know. But when he was there, he didn't quite have the the freedom. He was there was uh, still other people above him, limiting him, right? Um, but then after that, uh, Lennon, Marv, and by the way, I'm number six, depending on whether or not you count Stan. If I, if you count Stan, I'm number seven. He never called himself editor in chief. Oh, okay. But anyway, anyway, um, 
so you had uh, Lynn and Moore and then Jerry for about three weeks and then Archie and then me. Now, Archie, also one of the smartest human beings you have ever met. But Archie is one of those guys. All these guys are creative guys. And Archie especially, if he, if he had to talk to an accountant or a lawyer's eyes glaze, glaze over. I mean, he just hated all the bureaucracy and the crap, you know. And I think, uh, you know, Len and Marv were happy to let Saul Barotsky or anybody else take care of all that stuff. They just, they wanted to, you know, play with the books. Um, okay, so when I was at D.C., one good thing that happened there was this guy, Mort Weisinger, I guess he thought I had potential to, you know, do what he did, which is, you know, he was the, he was, they didn't call him editor in chief either. He, he was the head editor. He was the vice president. He ran the editorial. And, uh, and he, he actually, I think, uh, he, I didn't know it at the time. I, why is he telling me all this stuff? But he was training me to kind of do what he did, you know? And I, the way I know that is that his assistant was E. Nelson Bridwell. Years later, Nelson told me that. He said, oh, yeah, he was training you to have a, a job like his. I said, oh, okay. So anyway, when I arrive at Marvel, I, I could read financials. <laughs> I, you know, I uh, I could uh, speak to the printer and use the right words. I could, you know, talk to the production department and use the right words. Because, I, I mean, he trained me. He, I, I, not only about writing and drawing and all that stuff, but but production, printing production, distribution, licensing, marketing, um, the whole business of the business, you know. So I walked in there a little more prepared than most of the other guys by circuitous paths, but, but, you know, and so, uh, you know, I, I set out to, you know, we were dying. It was dying and it was, it was in bad, bad shape. Um, DC was worse. Um, you know, other comics were co- companies were Warren died, Charlton died, uh, Harvey stopped publishing, Archie went all reprint. Um, uh, I don't know who else, but, but, uh, uh, oh, and then DC on one day, DC canceled 40% of their books. Oh my God. You know, yeah, it was good. They call it the implosion, DC implosion. Um, and, and what do you think the root of that was? Was it just like poor creative output from the companies or just general disinterest? Well, I think that it was a combination of ingredients and, and, uh, one of the, one of the things was that, that they, there was no one manning the helm. I mean, like I said, the uh, previous editor-in-chief, several of them just kind of tried to be head writers, lead by example kind right. of thing. And, 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 and they had they grown too fast because of the su- success stand built. And so all of a sudden you've got all these guys whose chief qualification is that they read a thousand comics and they're, they're either editors or they're writers or, you know, what? <laughs> and, and so, uh, um, and also, like I said, DC had completely lost its way. I don't think they were really got it right but um uh and marvel uh, it, it, it had like i say fallen under disrepair there was there was a lot of corruption and some you know people double vouchering and, and mm. uh, uh so one guy was embezzling and you know Ooh. so so i mean it was it was it was in bad shape and also the books almost all the books all the companies the books were late they were all late. That we had books that hadn't left house to go to the printer when I came in that first day, January nineteen seventy-eight. And they were done, there, ready there were to books. go. They're, they're, they've just got them finished, and they're just ready to go to the printer. And they should have been on sale four months earlier. Oh my gosh! You follow me here? Yeah, that was really, and, and, really and then, bad. 
Yeah, no, it was terrible. And and the thing is, like, people just wouldn't show up. They they, they wouldn't deliver the work. It just straggled in. The production manager, John Reporton, who was trying to, you know, run things, although he didn't really have the authority. Um, uh, he, he, he couldn't get people to deliver on time. Uh, that's why there were so many fill-ins and, and uh, unscheduled reprints. Oh, the dreaded deadline, doom, and all that stuff. In, in January of 1978, my first month, uh, we were supposed to publish 45 color comics. We published 26. Oh. Okay? So, so chaos, madness, crime and corruption, you know, it was, it was a nightmare. And then on top of that, the day I take office, I get a call from the company lawyer, um, brilliantly. Um, and, and, but, uh, and she, but she didn't know. She just she calls me up, calls up the editor and she, and she says, um, she says, what have you done about the copyright law of 1976? I said, lady, I've been here 15 minutes. <laughs> and, 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 and she's, she said, oh, oh, well, we need to talk. Well, apparently they changed the copyright law in 1976. They gave everybody two years to get ready for it. And no one at Marvel had done anything, nothing. And so DC was more buttoned up that way. They were more buttoned up legally. They had prepared vouchers and stuff that had work for hire documents attached. They were all legally solid. Marvel, nothing, you know. And so... um you know, we're trying to get people to sign retroactive work for hire documents so that they don't own the Spider-Man story they just did, and uh, and stuff like that. And you know, they look work for hire. It, it, I'm sorry, I couldn't change that. They right, for sure. And and so yeah, same with Disney. You work on a duck, they own the duck. Right, of course. But 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 the thing is, um, uh, it doesn't have to be bad work for hire. It can be fair. It can be good. Disney pays pretty well, actually. So anyway, uh, um, I couldn't change that. But but the thing is, so now there's all these books that are done and books being done that Marvel does, can't prove that they own because they don't have any work for hire documents for these people. So I'm trying to, to tell people that, you know, hey, you really need to sign this work for hire. And, and so it's kind of a nuclear option here. I mean, they got us uh, in a corner because if they don't sign it, you know, uh, then that's a threat. And my threat, I guess, was, you know, well, then we got to stop using you, you know. Um, and I didn't want to do that. Sure, and, sure. Uh, you know, so so anyway, uh, um, uh, 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 then Neil Adams, my my buddy, all through this, I got some of his first work at DC was drawing covers based on my sketches. Wow. <laughs> okay, because I did sketches for everything. Yeah, I love Neil so, Adams. Uh, yeah, we were we were big buddies, you know. But he was also kind of a labor leader type. He he decided this was a great time to go on strike against Marvel, you know, get all the creators to form a guild and go on strike against Marvel, and you know, get concessions from management. And I told him, I said, Neil, the place is about to go out of business. You're not going to help anybody. You know, they're, they're, you if you make those demands, they'd rather close the place, you know. And he's no, I think we can put pressure on him. Oh, Neil, leave me alone. Uh, anyway, uh, so, uh, but, but he was trying to help from the outside, and I was trying to help from the inside. And and so what really helped was the DC implosion. Because the the morning after, there was a line out the door all the way to the elevator lobby and beyond that, and people waiting in the downstairs lobby because they couldn't get in upstairs. Artists, writers. People looking from, for work. Mostly from DC looking for work and all the Marvel guys in line 
because they didn't want to lose their jobs. Right. They were ready to sign the contract at that no, point. No, well, yeah, we'll sign it right now. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. So that's all I did that day. It was, it was like, I had documents signed. And, and uh, um, so anyway, that, that, that blew over. And then I thought, okay, time for me to make good here. Time for me to, to live up to all the you know, stuff I've been saying. So we got, we got better conditions for the graves. I doubled the rates. I doubled them again. Kept increasing them after that. Uh, I had a pretty free hand. And the didn't you institute new. a royalty program as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the, the president was kind of new, and he said, I don't care what you do as long as you don't lose money. I said, okay, that's a free hand. And and so anything I wanted to do, I, I got it done. I got uh, for, uh, first to increase the rates. Uh, and second, uh, uh, get um, the better benefits. We had uh, life insurance. All If you're a freelancer, all you had to do is three jobs a year. Okay. Health, uh, health insurance, three jobs a year. Good yeah. health insurance. Same as the company. This isn't just for contract guys. This is for freelancers. Yeah, that must have been and huge had, for those guys. Yeah, we had we had all kinds of other programs. We had, uh, you know, like I said, I said, Lady, if it's work for hire, we can't expect these guys to buy to buy their own materials because you can't expect the workers to bring the leather to the shoe factory and then claim you on the shoes. Right. You know? <laughs> so. So I, I, I said, that's it. You know, you bring me your receipts, pens, pencils, ink, uh, pencil sharpener, uh, anything. You know, Windsor Newton brush will cost you a couple hundred bucks. So it was a good benefit. And and so I said, bring me the receipts or we'll, re- we'll reimburse you for everything. You know, yeah, you can take the tax deduction and get a lesser, you know, uh, benefit. Or I can just pay for it. You, you pick. Paid for all their travel. If I ask them to come to the office, I paid. If uh, uh, if I ask them to mail, if they, they had to, if they were mailing stuff to Marvel, we paid the postage. If they were uh, on the phone with Marvel back in those days, you that you know we charged per call, I paid their phone bill. So so and the way, is, the way I was able to do this is I got the books on time, and I started saving lots of money, and I got rid of the guys who were embezzling or stealing and double vouchering and stuff like that, and I fixed the system so they couldn't do that anymore. And I guess I fucking more taught, more taught me how. Well, how long did and, it and take so, you to do that? Like during your tenure, do you think you had it reined in by 1980, 81? Did it take you a few years? I would say, I would say, I would say the, the bulk of it was done in a year. And then came the royalty program. And the royalty program was just tremendous. I mean, uh, you know, like, uh, cause then you're getting not only your page rates, which have gone up dramatically and all the benefits and stuff like that. But then, on top of that, you get a, a, basically an incentive based on how well your book sells. And DC had the same basic program as we did. They had, you had to, your book had to sell over 100,000, and then it, you'd start getting royalties. Their royalty pool was 4%. Same, I said, all right, match that. Our royalty threshold was 100,000. It made sense for economic reasons. That is too, too boring to explain. Um, uh, our royalty threshold will be a hundred, uh, a hundred thousand, but we'll have a 10% royalty pool. And, and as, as your sales go up, it's a sliding scale. You get more, the royalties increase as your sales go up. So guess what the X-Men was paying? <laughs> I'm going to say <laughs> but, about uh, 30 or 40% royalties. <laughs> well, um, no, it, 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 it was a 10% pool. But the ten percent was huge. Yeah. Because you know, oh, 10% okay. Of like eight hundred thousand copies, and and so so anyway, and also PSDC at that time had they had three titles that sold over a hundred thousand. Every Marvel title sold over a hundred thousand. So we were at we, I, when I convinced them to do their royalty program. That was that was a great leap of faith. And Stan helped me talk talk the board of directors into it. 
and uh, uh, made it clear to them that we don't do this, and DC does, we're toast. And and it's, uh, so they, they said, oh, it's going to cost three three quarters of a million dollars off the bottom line, according to these projections. You know, um, how, how are you going to make that up? I said, sales will go up. And I said, we, we will make that back end more. And guess what? It cost us two million bucks off the bottom line. Imagine how much money we had to make <laughs> to pay out two million bucks in royalties. Yeah, in the 80s, just, especially. Yeah, you know, and like I, my famous story at one time, John Byrne was in the office and I handed him a royalty check for one issue of one comic book for which he had been well paid up front. One issue, one comic book. Worldy, $30,000. Here's a check, John. That wasn't the biggest one he ever got. I bet he was a happy camper but, that day. Well, that day he was, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but he, like I said, he, that wasn't even the biggest one he ever got. And, and, and I, but he happened to be in the office, so I handed it to him. That's you know? astronomical yeah. if you think about it, because yeah. it's really just in, incentivizing these creators to do their absolute best work. And they did, because yeah. there, there was and an then, incentive for it. And then word spreads. Hey, you can make money at Marvel. So more great guys show up. And, 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 and then, you know, the sales go up some more because, you know, better books, better things. It took me about a year to get most of that in place and also a year to get the books on time. I mean, during the time, we, we published everything we were supposed to publish. We never had an unscheduled reprint, and we did have some fill-ins in that first year because we just had to play catch-up. Uh, but by the time that end of the year came, we were – um, I had a, I have a letter from Bob Craig from World Color saying, uh, uh, congratulations for the first time in its history since 1939, Marvel Comics is on time. Wow. Yeah, you really accomplished a lot. I mean, your tenure during Marvel Comics, I mean, it's considered the gold standard of comics these days. Well, what, what we, had, we had the best team ever assembled, partially because the other companies are collapsing. Guys like Larry Hamas showed up, was able to get Archie Goodwin back. Got Louise Simons, you know. I mean, if you can't win with that team, fire the coach, you know. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, got the books on time, and they stayed on time for the whole time I was there and, and, and after that, because, of course, there were books in the pipe, you know, from my tenure, even after I left. So it's like, so about 10 years where we, we stayed on time. Well, in 19, and I don't know what happened after that. In 1982, you created the or helped to create the Epic Comics imprint, which kind of focused cre on creator-owned titles and fringe stories, almost mimicking independent comic publishers. Did you feel like Epic Comics was expanding the art form when it was initiated? Well, yeah. I mean, what happened was uh, the, the people from Metal Herland uh, came to us, wanted us to license to license Mattel Herlant and become the American publisher of Mattel Herlant. And Stan and I looked at Mattel. I, I was familiar with it, but we we looked at it together, and he said, "This this, this stuff is like very violent and, and and very sexy." And I said, "Yes." I said, "You know, uh, okay." So I mean, and uh, he 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 said, "I don't think we should do that." I said, "All right." I said, "Well, how about we do one that's." The art is just as good, but the story is what it's about. It's not about, you know, the, the graphic violence or whatever. And so he liked that idea. And, and so uh, we started working on that. We, he wasn't involved with the comics, but when he was in the office, he's Stan Lee. Right. So if I want to talk about something, you know, go see Stan, you know. Um, he mostly was out on the West Coast. But uh, when he was around, I, I made use of him. 
Um, so anyway, we started working on it. We hired one guy to edit it. He didn't work out at all. We, actually, the president of the company ordered me to fire him because he kept making giant mistakes and costing us many tens of thousands of dollars. So we got rid of him. And and then Archie, uh, who had, after, he, he was the editor-in-chief before me, and he had left staff to become a contract writer. But it, it was hard keeping up, you know, with Archie never wrote three books a month in the best month of his life. Oh, wow. And, and, and that, his contract called for him to write three books a month. And he was struggling with that. And so uh, um, I got him to come back and, and be the editor of Epic. I mean, he understood, we had an understanding. I wasn't going to bother him. There was nothing I could teach him. He, he, knew, he knew what to do. However, I could pave the road for him. I could take care of the budgets and the lawyers and the licensing people and all that stuff because I was doing it anyway for the regular comics. And, uh, and so I, I did the bureaucracy. He focused on, on, on creating the books. And, you know, Archie's maybe best of all time. I mean, he, he, he really amazing. He did great stuff. And it was kind of like, what if Metal Erlant was more about the content and less about the graphics? Right. And, uh, and, and, and I thought that was good. I, I, that was kind of, I guess, the inspiration. And Archie was the perfect guy for it. I tried to, I wanted a Frazetta cover before we had Archie signed up. I wanted a Frazetta cover on our first issue. So I, I called the Frazetta's and Ellie Frazetta was the gatekeeper. You didn't talk to Frank. Did. So Ellie answered the phone. I said, hi. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm the editor-in-chief of Marvel, Marvel Comics, and I want to click. We don't like you. <laughs> Hung up on me. And so I told Archie, I told Archie, I said, Archie, I was trying to get a Frazetta cover. He said, I'll call Ellie. So he calls her, hey, Ellie, it's Archie. You know, And they're chatting away and talking about the kids and stuff. And then we got two Frazetta covers. <laughs> Oh wow! So, you know, everybody loved Archie. He was ideal for that. He knew everybody. He, you know, uh, next thing you know, we got Art, Art Sudam working for us. We got all these other great creators working for us. Did, did brilliant covers. Um, and uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I helped that pave the road. Well, there's and eventually there's so much classic work that came out of your time at Marvel Comics. Yeah, some of the most comics, greatest comics yeah. ever created, almost. I think so. I, I think that, but like I say, I mean, I had all the best guys in the world. I mean, I had, you know, if you, if you walk down the hall and you look to your right at the first door and there's, there's your art director. That, that art director works for me. His name is John Romita senior. You know? <laughs> Holy cow. You know, it's like a grandmaster hall of fame. And this right. one, this one, Archie over there, you got Larry Hama, Louis Simons, eventually Carl Potts, Al Milgram. It's just like, the best ever, you know, and, and, uh, if you get guys like that and they know what they're doing, let them do it. Right. You have the influence of all the golden agers to draw from as well. But, you know, by 1987, uh, you were moving on from Marvel. You tried to purchase it. It didn't exactly work out. And there was also some issues, at least from Marvel's perspective, with the launch of the new universe. And this was in celebration of Marvel's, I believe, 25th anniversary. You created a yes. different comic universe, still published by Marvel, that had original characters, original stories, but it was a little more hyper real. And in a way, it was the proto Valiant Comics. And we'll get to that in just a second. But does yeah. it feel strange to you that? at the time when you were writing the new universe comics that you were seemingly condemned by Marvel for the new universe. But since then 
they've relaunched the new universe a few times and even incorporated aspects of it into the main Marvel universe. Is that strange for you? No, I need to see the story behind the story there is that it, it, uh, uh, a couple years before the 25th anniversary, which was 86, um, uh, there was a meeting of all the executive staffs, all the vice presidents, the president, and me. Um, I was the vice president. And uh, um, so none of these people had ever opened a comic book. None of them, right? So they, they didn't they didn't really know what they were talking about. But but the the, the, the publicist person who was not a vice president, by the way, but then she wasn't in the meeting. Uh, she she had alerted everyone, hey, it's our 25th anniversary coming up. We need to do something. So I got all these people sitting around with me, and um, you know, like I said, people never open the comic book, and, and they're suggesting things like, well, we could do a coffee table book. Oh, that's, that's a big deal, you know. Um, and it's like a bunch of you know dumb ideas, and and so they all kind of look at me. Well, what do you got? You know, my first idea was I said I said well, I get condemned by this because people don't understand and they they misunderstand this. But sure. what I said was I said how about in January the the, the anniversary is actually summer. So I said so how about in January we announce that in June all Marvel camp comic books are finished cancel over i said and then what we do is we in those six months we build toward the end of the marvel universe i said you think we'll sell any you know i said and then they all end they're all over as in june and in july we launch all new oh and 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 the thing is i said that would have been amazing what we do is 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 you know, we we have such a tangle of continuity and stuff like now. I said, but if we start clean, okay, we keep everything that's good about Spider-Man, and and we 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 forget some of the the dumb stuff. You know, Iron Man no longer has to be created during the Vietnam War. <laughs> you know, the Fantastic right. Four don't have you know, and so forth. And I said, just we just do the, like the second iteration and clean it up and and do it better. Keep everything that's good. And, you know, and then kind of forget the time where uh, it was Jerry Conway had uh, Hercules tie a chain to Manhattan and pull it out to sea. Um, that doesn't work. Uh, you know, and then he pulls it back with the same chain, which now puts the battery up by the Bronx. So, so anyway, um, the thing is, uh, it's, you know, we get rid of the dumb stuff, you know. And, and so I was shouted down. <laughs> By um, the the uh, uh, circulation director and and then one of the and the VP of finance, the circulation director, he brought his his uh, assistant who handled the direct market, and they just shouted me down. They said it it it, it, it it's we're outselling DC almost four to one. We're, we we everything is selling great. We're doing so good. Why would you change it? You know, I said, all right, all right, all right. I hear you. Um, uh, all right. I said, all right, we're celebrating the birth of a universe. How about we create another one? And everyone said, oh, that's great. Okay. And I figured we'd start with eight, eight, 12, eight titles or 12. I can't remember. So anyway, by the time I left that meeting, I had a huge development budget, like a quarter million dollars just to develop our properties. And, um, and it was going to have guaranteed royalties for people because, you know, it was Walt going to leave Thor to do something new unless he's guaranteed that his income won't drop, you know, that kind of thing. 
so 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 I had all kinds of you know money marketing budget, all kinds of stuff to play with, and um, and then about two weeks later, uh, the president of the company calls me to his office, and he says, "How much have you spent?" And I said, "I don't know, ten, twenty thousand, or something. I don't know." And he said, "He said, don't spend another penny." I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "I don't want to spend another nickel on this thing." I said, "Well, why?" Well, here's why. He didn't say it. But what was why was because he and the other the Cadence Porter directors had taken Cadence private, taken it off the stock market. It was now owned by six guys. It was seven originally. They got rid of one. Six, six guys. And uh, and they were planning uh, to sell Marvel. Okay. Because they, they, Cadence right. was a company that had a lot of little companies. Marvel was the country. So, so they were planning to sell Marvel, and they didn't want to invest any money. Okay, because if you're trying to sell it, all you want to do is put money on the bottom line, save money, do anything you can to make a little extra money because companies like Marvel are sold for a multiple of their pre-tax profit. Right. All right. So every penny you can put on the bottom line, you're probably going to get 25 pennies back when you sell the company. So, 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 okay. He says, I don't want you. I said, well, I said, well you, you don't want us to do it. He said, no, I want you to do it. You just have to do it on staff. Ah. What? You know? So anyway, you'll notice in the new universe books, uh, basically, uh, Archie came to my rescue. He, he, he's, he was so good. He, uh, he, he said, I'll help you. And he did. And he created half of the things. And, uh, and you'll notice in the credits that a lot of the credits are assistant editors, me and Archie, because, they were the only ones who would help me for free. Wow. Because there they really was no work. budget at that point. No, we had no money. I stole some money from, from the regular Marvel budget. Uh, but, uh, but I, not enough to pay royalties and stuff. I just used it for promotion. Um, and, uh, uh so basically it wasn't like you know, I did it and, and they were mad at me. It was that, you know, they they had a whole different agenda. As soon as they decided to sell the company, man, they're not interested. They don't care, you know. And you know, do it on staff. You know, we don't care how how hard it is on you. We'll be gone. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and and eventually they were. And by 1987, you know, new, the New Universe comics were still going, but they felt like it was time for you and Marvel's, uh, I guess, tenure to end. And then you moved on from there, but you knew that it was for sale because you had tried to purchase it yourself, right? Well, what happened was uh, that, you know, um, I, they did sell it. They sold it uh, towards the end of 1986. The deal actually closed, I think, on, in, in January, early January of 1987. The deal actually closed. They, the board of directors succeeded in selling the company to New World Pictures, which then changed its name to New World Entertainment. Right. But at any rate, so so they succeeded in selling the company, and I I, I knew a lot about business and stuff like that, but I, I didn't go to business school or whatever, and and I didn't. I, Paul Levitz would have known exactly what to do. He is an MBA, but I, okay. I, I did. I, I just uh, what I didn't realize is I was a key man. They couldn't sell it without me. I had a lot of clout. I didn't know I had. You know, and uh, and so but so I stuck around and the, the, the place was sold. One of the reasons I stuck around is that I was complaining. That they were kind of eviscerating all my programs like they they were uh, they took away the 
the, the 401k. They took away the uh, um, pension plan. They cashed out the pension plan. They 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 uh, took they eviscerated our health. Oh my god! They made it into a, a crummy HMO that nobody took. They they just and, and of course a lot of this is being blamed on me. And what am I going to tell the guys upstairs? Are screwing you? In which case they all quit and go to DC. In which case it's Jim Shooter's driving talent away. You know. So anyway, I kept telling guys, I'm trying to fix it. I'm working on it. I'll see what I can do. You know. And and so I mean, Walt Simon's kid, he says, how not how come I'm getting my foreign royalties on on Star Slammer? I said, I'll look into it. I found out that they deliberately weren't paying foreign royalties anymore. They said, well, if it comes to a lawyer, maybe we'll consider it. I'm like, well, you know, I tell him, well, well, bring your lawyer. He quits. So it th- seemed like things were deteriorating. Yeah, I'm fighting these guys every day. The company is sold. And the, one of the reasons I stuck around is because Golden said, the day the company is sold, we're going to fix everything. And I said, all right. And, you know, he, he basically had been pretty honest with me up to then. Um, but on the day the company was sold, I said, all right, let's start fixing. And he told me, I don't know if I can say this or not, but he said, fuck you. Oh, you can't. Because he, he, he had his money, you know, and, uh, and uh, he was one of the partners. And, and then I went down and I wrote my resignation letter. And then I thought about it. And I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make trouble. And, and so I wrote instead a letter to the new owners telling them where the bodies were buried. And so we had a kind of stormy four months there, you know, where the, the uh, new owners were looking into all the stuff I said and management people upstairs who were partners in the, in the sale hated me because I ratted them out. Right. And, uh, and so they hated me and they started undercutting me. They, it was like, I didn't even work anymore. They're hiring people. I walk past an office. I see a guy. I don't even know who he is. So who are you? I'm the editor of such and such. Huh? All right. You know, I mean, they, they, they basically, they just pretty, forced me out. you pretty much neutered all your abilities and then, and then forced you out. Yeah. And, yeah. And then, well, what happened was it forced me out. I mean, basically they, 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 you know, uh, walled me in. Uh, so I wasn't even involved anymore and spent all my time upstairs with them fighting anyway. And, uh, and then they fired me once they figured they, once they thought that they had somebody who could replace me, they, they fired me. That was in April, I guess. Right. And is that and, when uh, you got the idea to try to purchase Marvel and then you teamed up with, I believe his name was Steve Masarski. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. And Winston and, and Winston folks. But, but the thing is after, uh, I left Marvel, um, after I was fired, uh, a couple of editors said, well, why don't you write for us? And then they were told, no, no, you're not allowed to hire him. And so I couldn't get, I was black, blacklisted there. And I, I, uh, uh, you know, I was trying to make a living and get a gig. Well, meanwhile, I was kind of keeping track of Marvel and the trade magazines. I always get all the trade papers, you know, at the daily variety and weekly variety and, and, uh, you know, a lot of the, the better, sure. Uh, yeah, fan magazines, you know, the comic spires guy and all that stuff. And, um, and so I was kind of keeping track of things. And I, I realized that this conglomerate that had bought Marvel was financed by junk bonds, paying tremendous interest. And they were losing a million dollars a day, not Marvel. The whole thing was losing a million dollars a day and Marvel sales were declining because they were, the chaos was coming back and things were being late again. And, uh, um, so I said, 
these these new buyers, new world people, they're going to have to sell something, and they don't have anything worth anything except marble. So I, through a friend, I met this guy Winston Folks, who was ex-time incorporated, uh, high-ranking senior financial guy. And I also uh, I met this guy Steve Masarski. He actually hired me to do a job. Uh, he he was a lawyer, but he was an entertainment lawyer. He wanted to produce a show. Originally, he wanted to produce a Cabbage Patch, like arena show, you know, traveling arena show. Right, and he worked with and, the Almond Brothers the cab- as well, right? Yeah, that is, so he knew something about traveling shows. He he was the uh, Almond Brothers uh, Almond Brothers road manager. So anyway, among other things, he also was lawyer for Ziggy Marley and he, you know, and uh, the Almond Brothers guys and a few other. Oh, and and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Aerosmith. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, and, you know, so I mean, he was connected. Uh, so he wanted originally to do Cabbage Patch Kids, and they weren't available. So he went to Marvel, and he got the license to do an arena show. Marvel characters. And this is how stupid the people upstairs were in those days. Steve Masarski got a two-year license. All characters, all live-action rights for all Marvel characters for $12,500 a year. Oh, my God! And they thought they were stealing the money <laughs> because they didn't have any idea what the, no one had ever opened a book. I, I had this uh, one, one executive, Joe Calamari, he was executive vice president. And, and so he kind of took the lead in licensing uh, movie rights. Basically, anyone who walked in the door with 5000 bucks, whether they had any credentials or not, they could license any Marvel comic uh, uh, character they wanted. And he thought that Spectacular Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man were two different characters. So he licensed them to two competing movie companies. Oh, my God. That just shows how out of touch he, he was. He, li- he licensed the Avengers to one guy and Iron Man to another guy. Oh. Not thinking... <laughs> Not not having any clue that Iron Man was in the Avengers, and, and so forth. So, it was a nightmare. So was Steve pretty excited that he got the the license for oh, this Steve, universe? Steve couldn't believe it. He, he, when he, they told him they wanted twenty five thousand dollars or two years, he's like, uh, "Okay, got that right here." You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, he was just stunned. And, and so then then he says to the guy licensing guy, Doug McKenzie, good guy, one of the few guys up there actually ever did open a comic book. He says to him, uh, he said, well, he said, I, I don't know how to get a writer for this. And Mackenzie said, and this is before I got there. Mackenzie said, he said, our editor-in-chief's a genius. He said, he said, you you talk to him and he'll fix you up with a, a really good writer. And Mosarcy said, great. So after he signs a deal, he says, all right, now I want to meet this genius editor-in-chief of yours. They say, well, we fired him last week. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, well, what? What? What am I going to do now? You know, and so Mackenzie says, he says, get him to write it. He said, it, 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 it'll be great. He says, just, he'll 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 do a good job. And if he if he writes it, there won't be any problems getting it approved or anything because he knows the characters like a bag of sand. So Masarski calls me up, hires me to write this arena show, and I wrote it. And he raised uh, a million dollars, and uh, and then he finally raised the rest. He needed three and a half million. Raised the rest of it from Radio City. He raised a million from MC Universal, MCA Universal, and then he raised uh, two and a half from from um, uh, Radio City. But Radio City said, "Look, you've never produced a show like this. We'll produce. It. Don't worry, you'll get your money. You know, but but you know, we'll take over the production and work with MCA Universal and and, and so forth." And so Masashi was happy. He's going to be an executive producer. He doesn't have to do all that much work, and he gets money. 
and um, and I was going to get paid well because uh, I wrote the, the script. And um, however, he got um, he got Radio City kind of too late. There wasn't quite enough time to mount the show. Okay, they needed an extension on his contract. By this time, somebody had wised him up at Marvel, and so when he went back to try to get a, an extension on his contract, right, they wanted like five million dollars, and he said, "What? You know, but like, you know, how can that be? You know." So anyway, he actually arranged a meeting with the executives from MCA Universal, the executives from Radio City, Joe Calamari, who was a senior vice president or something at Marvel, and himself. And, they, and the, the MCA Universal people and the Radio City people are trying to talk to, talk to you, Calamari, saying, you're already mine. You're going to make a fortune. You know, this is going to bring in so much money. It's why you, you know, if you make an impossible barrier, we're going to be able to do it. So he's not that surprised, you know. Okay, so uh, so what happens is that uh, uh, right after uh, uh, the the contract runs out, Masarsky contract runs out. Calamari calls MCA Universal and he calls Radio City. He says, "Let's do the deal without this idiot, right?" Oh. So they're just trying to get they were just trying to get rid of Masarsky. So anyway, I mean, they're going along. They're working on this show, and and, and uh, you're starting to, you know, starting to work on it. And then I get a call from uh, this guy. I think his name is uh, Phil Marr. Phil Marr, I think. Uh, anyway, Radio City exec. And he says, Jim, he says, he says, you know, Marvel says they own your script. Is that true? I said, no, they don't own my script. I said, well, how would they own my script? You know, I said, I never signed anything. You know, I had a handshake with Masursky. And um, he says, oh, he says, well, they claim that it was work for hire and they own it. I said, let them make them show you a piece of paper that says so, you know. So anyway, he called a meeting with me, Calamari, Masarsky, and some Radio City execs. And um, and so Calamari keeps insisting that Marvel owns my script. I said, just prove it, you know. I don't own it. I didn't sign any work for hire. I didn't sign any contract at all, you know. And uh, you know, he said, you had no right to make that deal. I said, I'm a freelancer. I'll make any deal I want. And and uh, so he's railing at me and stuff. And um, uh, and so Masarski had told the Radio City guy what my deal was. And my deal with Masarski was pretty rich. And so the guy, the Radio City guy says, he says Jim, he says, this, this is a pretty rich deal that you cooked up with Masarski here. He said, uh, he said, hey, did you, you want all this, you know? I said, I said, what, what's uh, what's normal? And they said, well, normally the writer gets two percent, the lyricist gets two percent, the composer gets two percent. And I said, fine, I demand to be treated normally. <laughs> and uh, so, so he turns to Joe Calamari. He says, this is the most reasonable man in the world, Joe. Let's make a deal, you know. And Calamari is losing his mind, and and you know, no, you know, it's so. Finally, he offers. All right, Marvel and Jim will split the writer's share. In other words, he gets 1%, Marvel gets 1%. And I said, nope, I demand to be treated normally. And uh, and so he's railing at me, sticking his finger in my face and, and yelling and stuff. And and then he says, we don't need your script. We, we, we get a new script. I'll have Stan Lee himself write the script. And this is one of my greatest Pyrrhic victories is the Radio City guy taps his finger on my script and says, Joe, we like this one. Dang. So he keeps yelling and stuff. So if Masarsky says, hey, we're not getting anywhere. 
I said, yeah, okay, let's go. So we left. And um, they they did announce that Stan was going to write a script. Never happened. And, and then, you know, basically at that point, Stan wasn't, he wasn't going to do any massive project like that. He'd probably sure. get someone to help him with it, you know, and, and uh, I don't know if any, if it even started, but it, it was never done. And if, if they had just let it go, Spider-Man, wait, Spider-Man and the Night of Doom, which was the name of my show, would have debuted on the Radio City Music Hall stage two weeks after the first Batman movie. It was such a huge hit. Oh, Do you think anyone man. would have gone? That would have been massive. Do you massive. think anyone would have gone? It would have been massive. Yeah. It would have been, spec- it would have been it spectacular. Would, it was going to tour. It, would have, it was going to tour all the Nederlander arenas, all the uh, MCA Universal arenas, uh, and some other ones besides, uh, because those, those were already booked. Masarski booked this. And, uh, you know, so anyway, all right, so here we are. This takes me a while to get through all this process. And then I, I need a gig. So we started looking. He said, why don't we start a company? And I said, all right, let's do that. So we, we uh, started looking to, to raise money and, and perhaps start a company. We made an attempt to um, uh, buy uh, Harvey Comics. Uh, they couldn't prove they owned anything. They didn't have a single piece of paper from anybody. Oh, really? People don't um, really know that. That's actually not really well publicized. So first you tried to buy Harvey Comics. Yeah, we tried to buy Harvey. We looked into a couple other things. Uh, Stan Weston, you may have heard the name. He's the guy who invented G.I. Joe. Okay. Legend in the toy and licensing business. Um, uh, he had a little team he put together, and they were they were interested in doing a startup with us. Uh, uh, but a lot of, you know, not very many venture places want to do startups. They want to buy things. Right. Um, so, so, so we, but we did find one and they, they, they financed, uh, the start of Valiant and, uh, and that was Triumph uh, Capital. Is that correct? Yeah, it was Triumph Capital. Now in, in that year, 1988, uh, ending in 89, that's when I tried to buy Marvel with Masarski okay. and my, my financial guy, Winston folks and, uh, and failed. What happened was we, there were nine bidders in the auction. We were the only bidder who actually made a bid. And the reason I know that is because none of the other places could get management. And how do I know that? Because they all called me. Okay. Okay. So all, all the other bidders, when they couldn't get management, me, somebody like me, uh, they, they, they dropped out. We were the only bid for two weeks. We thought we won. And then, uh, we signed papers, you know, we, we're going to, you know, uh, be in business pretty soon. We're making plans. And then, uh, my financial guy calls me like 6 a.m. He says, have you read the journal? I said, 6 a.m. I haven't read the journal, you know? And he said, he, he said, Perlman bought Marvel. I said, how can that be? He said, he, he was an insider. He used us as uh, an arm's length bid. So an, as an insider, you need an arm's length bid. So you can also be a buyer. Right. So you need to gauge and, uh, the price. Yeah, it has so that sets the price. So we were just set up as a stalking horse. He 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 never intended to let anybody else buy it. And uh, uh, so, you know, uh, he owned twenty percent of New World Pictures, which was selling it. And and because we made a bid, he was able to swoop in and buy. We usually they have a process called ratcheting, which you know if they get two bidders, they play them off against each other, drive the price up. Um, and uh, we were prepared for that. Uh, we bid eighty-one million dollars. He bid eighty-two and a half. 
But he didn't get the counter bid. No, we didn't. He wasn't even in the auction. We probably could have gone up maybe to 115. Okay. But, uh, you know, because I had we had Chase North America and we had a good good equity partner. And um, So anyway, but we weren't even given an opportunity. I mean, he did a million and a half more than us uh, and took it. And and we didn't get any chance to reply or anything. They, his his CEO tried asked, well, he interviewed me to uh, be the president of Marvel. And we both agreed that probably wasn't a good idea. But, um, but anyways, uh, you know, it's like wow, <laughs> financial adventure. Who cares? I don't know. But, right. but uh, so we gave it a try. And then, and then what happened was we started dying. Yeah. You had the and money, course, you had the money and you had the, the initiative, the drive to do it. So now you have well, a chance we, to start something new. Yeah. So we had triumph capital and, uh, we ended up uh, with net probably $1,125,000, which is not a lot. And, uh, um, so we started and we tried and, uh, what went wrong was that the venture capital company was run by a lady named Melanie Oaken. Masarski started dating her. Yes. They got married. (laughs) Okay. All of a sudden he's her partner, not my partner. And so he decides, Hey, screw your superheroes that you've gone through hell of a license. Um, the, the gold key characters and then all the ones I was making up, he, he said, screw them. Let's, let's do Nintendo comics. Right. Okay. So before hmm. Valiant had any superhero comics that they released, you first had two licenses that you procured was one was from Nintendo comics and the other was from the WWF. Now the WWE. Right. Well, wrestling. and the thing is, well, why did we get those licenses? Because Masarski was the, media and entertainment lawyer on retainer for both of those companies. And so he made a deal with himself and his wife approved it. And so he gets paid a big fat fee. I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars for these two things. Cause as the lawyer, he gets paid this fat fee out of my money. I mean, our money, Valley's money. And, uh, and, and, and now we're doing Nintendo comics and now we're doing wrestling comics. And the thing is, we did our best because the thing is like, why didn't I quit? Well, because Don Perlin had come to work for me, JJ Jackson and a few other people by coming to work for me, they were officially blacklisted at Marvel and those other places. And, uh, so, so if, felt I, if, a responsibility? I out, I, if I walked out there on the street and they can't get a job, right? you know? So, so I said, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this stuff. We're going to do the best. We're going to make it work. We're going to make it sell. And if it's selling and it makes a little bit of money, I can raise money and buy these turkeys out because they don't care about anything but money. Right. And so that was my goal and I did my best, but they weren't likely to succeed. You know, you're they're not likely to succeed with Nintendo comics and, and with uh, wrestling. Well, you did think so, that you uh, had other avenues because it sounds like you did have promises from WWF and also Nintendo that they would put those comics in various promotional places and they didn't, oh, follow, yeah, yeah, they didn't follow through with that. No, not at all. Masarski his deal with himself was that Nintendo was going to give us their 3 million name mailing list. And, um, and that, well, that we were going to be, uh, they were going to arrange to have our books on display where the games are sold right next to the games. And the world wrestling had a plan to have us on sale in the venues. They, they reneged on all that. Uh, you know, I mean, Masarski made the deal with himself and then they, they said, we're not doing that. 
Yeah, and the, the first Nintendo comic that was ever published was the Nintendo Sneak Peek, which recently sold for a really high price on eBay. And you also had a couple comics. Oh, oh yeah, it went for like eighteen hundred bucks. Um, wow. Uh, I was, you know, it's a nine point eight CGC, so that did add a little value. But you know, it is yeah. considered the first Valiant comic, so that has some value there. But you also did the KFC comic and Cheezosaurus Rex. Was that just? companies coming to you for promotional work at that point? No, I mean, like, it took us a while. First of all, we blew through our million, million point one two five pretty pretty quick because the Nintendo books weren't selling and the wrestling books did even worse. And and so and we're still paying my employees and paying for the, the rent and everything. So we blew through that. Well, then Triumph Capital, Masarski's wife, uh, agreed to fund us on certain terms for a while. All right. So, uh, um, so anyway, we're trying to do the superheroes and turn that around because that started okay, but not, not great. I mean, we're selling like 80 some thousand of, of the first issue of Magnus. Right. Which again, today, those would be astronomical numbers, but you brought back, you incorporated some comic properties from the 60s, uh, Magnus Robot Fighter, Solar Man of the Animal, and later after Turok, but you brought those in to. No, it was Turok with me. I wrote the first Turok story. I threw the first ad myself. I I created everything to do with Turok. That's me. But but the thing is, um, uh, the. the Turok in his own book came after me. Right. That's right. That's right. Magnus 12. Yes. Anyway, so so for the, so by the time we were doing superheroes and starting to get going on those, we're like $3 million in the hole. And and I, so, I, I mean, like the fact that we sold 80000 of, of of Magnus, our break-even was probably 30000 So So, you know, okay, we made some money, but not nearly enough, you know, and, and Solar and so forth. And also... Uh, you know, the, 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 those numbers went down, okay, uh, for a little while. And and I'm trying to do anything to make money, anything. And so I, I, I came up with the idea, let's maybe we can do some custom comics and bring in some cash. And uh, to Masarcy's credit, he did track down uh, 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 Kraft General Foods and uh, um, KFC. And, you know, I, I guess, uh, I guess we did pitch, pitch them and, and then we did those books. They didn't make us a fortune, but they brought some money in, you know, and, um, cause they, you know, the thing is they were, they were 2 million copies of Jesus source and 1 million copies of KFC. And I think we got some small payment per, per copy, really tiny payment per, per copy. But, but at any rate, we, you know, we, we were doing anything to do to the, that would make us a few bucks. Right. Generate. We revenue. did a custom comic book. I did a custom comic book for a company, I think it was called PHH, which was a, one of the little phone companies. Um, <laughs> guess what? Doug McKenzie had left Marvel and started, and I guess started working for this company, PHH. He's the one that called me and said, hey, would you do us a little custom comic? Sure. <laughs> wow, I don't think people oh, yeah, realize that too. that one's out there. PHH, there's one more custom comic as yet to be found. Uh, that's one I haven't yeah. ever noticed. KFC, I've seen. The Cheezosaurus Rex, I've seen. But the PHH Valiant yeah. comic, I have never seen. I think so. It's a phone company. I think that's the name. But oh, wow. but at any rate, uh, yeah. So so we were just doing anything, scrambling every which way to try to make money. And also, another thing people don't know is, is that 
you know, uh, the since we were living off of uh, Masarsky's wife's, you know, uh, largesse, they they pretty much had they could they could call the shots. They put one of their guys in our place to uh, watch over us. His name was Fred Pierce. He later worked for um, Wizard. Uh, and then uh, he worked other places too, I guess. I oh yeah, he's still anyway, around, uh, still working at. Yeah, he's uh, still around. He's still working at the current iteration of Valiant Comics, believe it or not. Yeah, I know he came back uh, after a while. Uh, that, that, that that's another story. But uh, the thing is, like, he was kind of the watchdog. Yeah, when he was there, he wasn't that bad. He, he really kind of respected what I was doing and, and, and wasn't a bad, wasn't a jerk about it, you know. Um, and so. Uh, he he looked for things that he could do, and he he basically uh, started handling our printing project production, not the in-house printing production, which was good, and and he also did the financial stuff. Um, so because they fired Winston Folks, when Winston found out that Masarski was sleeping with Melanie Oaken, he he raised a fuss, and so they fired him. Oh. Get rid of him, and, uh, um, and you know they had enough votes on the board that they could do that. They actually needed my vote, but they, 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 I, I, I said, I said, look, when, when Winston says it's, it's okay with him, I said, then you got my vote. And so Winston negotiated himself a little parachute and said it was okay. So I, I let him fire him because it, it, it was not, it was, a, it was going to be like fire or close the company. It was, it's, it's always the nuclear option. Right. Um, so, so, so anyway, uh, 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 because we're paying freelancers, say, and uh, and then we have staff people. Uh, well, to save money, Melanie Oka said, "Well, why don't we fire some of these staff people? You know, let's get rid of them." I, I I kept explaining, "You have to have a critical mass. You have to have somebody doing marketing. You need your your paste up in production people. You need, you know, you you can't just say, well, fire six people, you know, and and uh, the work will still get done because it won't.' And and so so they worked out a plan. I think maybe it was Fred's idea. Because a lot of us who were on staff also, I did almost all the writing. Um, right. Uh, Layden, Layden did some inking. Perlin was penciling uh, Solar. Uh, uh, you know, JJ colored things. Uh, you know, for Jade Mady colored things and he lettered things. And so there was some work you'd ordinarily farm out that was being done In by house. staff people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so they said, okay, every person has to. Do enough money uh, that the equivalent amount of freelance payment would pay their salary. In other words, if you're if you're getting twenty thousand um, bucks to be the, uh, the, the um, in-house uh, um, letterer, you know you have to do twenty thousand dollars worth of lettering if you were paying a freelancer. Okay, you see. Right. In other words, you had to pay for yourself. Right. Okay. So they kept track of everybody's quota. All right. And, and how much they got paid. And each month they'd compare like how much did uh, Jade, how much did Jade made a letter in color and how much was his salary? Well, everybody had trouble meeting that because they're only counting like pages. And of course there's other things to do. There's other management things. Uh, JJ was doing a lot of the pre-press production work. You know, how many pages can she color? while doing the pre-press production. Jade was doing a lot of other office. Uh, yeah, people were uh, wearing stuff. multiple hats, it sounds like. Yeah, Don Perlin was spending time coaching the young artists. And, and you know, okay, so 
So anyway, uh, I made a deal with Fred Pierce. Uh, I, I was the highest paid person. So I had the biggest quota. I had a quota. And uh, so, so uh, I made a deal with him. I said, I said, if I beat my quota, can we take money from my output and apply it to other people? He said, I think I can arrange that. I said, all right, fine. So, like I said, I was the highest paid guy. So, typical month, J.J. Jackson wouldn't make her quota. Perlin usually came close. Layton wouldn't make his quota. Jay Mady wouldn't make his quota. Again, almost nobody makes quota. I beat mine by triple. All right? Just tell you how many hours I was working. I was. I would get up in the morning, go to work, and work till my till I, my I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. I'd sleep a few hours and go back to work. But you I absolutely loved it, though, didn't you? Like, I did, you loved I did every this second. for 540 days. So I loved doing it, but I mean, I almost killed myself. And so, but I kept beating my quota by enough to keep those other people employed. And then, uh, uh, you know, so, so, you know, we, one way or another, we didn't, and then guess what? It starts to turn around. We did uh, that, that um, Black Solar book. Right, that I was a beautiful book. Gigantic hit. And then, and then, you know, and by that time, uh, Archer and Armstrong was going, and and uh, Eternal Warriors hit, and and uh, all the other books started to pick up, and uh, the Harbinger, which had been the lowest for a while, people started to catch on. Hey, the Slapham guy's pretty good, and it becomes our bestseller. And, oh, it and, was amazing! It know. felt like, from my perspective as a reader, it felt like a new golden age was happening before our eyes of comics. There was these comics that were so much more emotionally powerful than what was being released from the other publishers at the time. It, it was, it was very stark when you saw those, uh, the comics and you read the comics, it was such a dramatic difference from what was going yeah. on. But you, it was really cause you had the freedom to do whatever you wanted in a way. Right. Well, well, yeah. I mean, nobody was telling me what to write, except uh, they wanted to cancel Harbinger. And I, that's one fight I wanted to said, hell no. I mean, it was selling like 26,000 copies on the fourth issue. So that's a little under break even. Right. I said, hell no. I said, I said, this guy's the next Frank Miller. Leave him alone. Oh, he's you amazing. Know? David I, Lapham I, is like I insane. backed him down. And, and then he, all of a sudden people say, hey, wait, it's good. And it starts climbing, climbing, climbing. And, uh, and Exo did well, too. And uh, just, you know, I mean, we turned it around. And then by the time uh, summer came along, uh, they, we were making so much money that, uh, well, Melanie and Masarski, they started quietly shopping the company behind my back. Okay. And when it finally sort of comes out that they're planning to sell a company, uh, you know, of course I owned enough stock that I could prevent that. Uh, so they had to somehow, you know, get me in line and they did what they in financial circles. It's called a cram down. They, they basically did everything they could to force it. You know, like right. threatening people and dragging you from meeting to meeting, and have people telling you how selfish you are. And so, um, so, so anyway, uh, they, they were trying to to do that. I found out um, some of this information came later, but I found Winston was fired, but he was still a stockholder, so so he got all the reports. So he would call me in, <laughs> you know, because they were keeping me in the dark as much as they sure. could. And uh, so. Uh, 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 so it, it comes out that they have an offer from Paramount for a quarter billion dollars. Bill, billion, for the B. $250 million. Yeah, and, and, and so they're, they're, they're desperate to have me sign documents. 
And I'm looking at these documents. It's a 10-year employment contract that specifies no title, no position, and no salary. And it has a clause in there that says if, if I fail to report to the new CEO uh, or if I fail to obey the new CEO, they can claw back all my stock. Take it. Just gone. Oh, that's insane. The new CEO, the bra, the boss they were bringing in over me was going to be Masarski's brother-in-law. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a family affair. So, and there was one more clause in the contract that if I failed to engender good morale, they could claw back all my stuff. Right. So very, very so abstract. Gender, so I come in one day, I come in, come in one day and piss off a letterer and then they take all my stuff. <laughs> yeah. I said, I said, you know what? I'm going to die later or I'm going to die now. So I'll die now. And I just refuse to sign everything. Well, a whole bunch of bad stuff happened. Um, uh, they, they thought maybe they could get by without me. They, they, they fired me and they made Barry Windsor Smith, Barry Windsor Smith, the president of the company so that they have a name person, you know, for the front man. Sure. Uh, they, they, they let the Bob and Bladen had been kind of running the bullpen. So they made him, you know, run the whole operation there, the comics creating part of the operation. Right. And, uh, um, they brought in, uh, a couple other people and, um, and they thought, you know, they could maybe, you know, uh, do it without me. Well, one of the worst decisions in comic Paramount book history, found out by the that way. I was gone. Huh? Uh, one of the worst decisions in comic book history, by the way. Yeah. One of the, I, I, I told him, I said, I said, you fools. I was building you a multi-billion dollar enterprise. I know. You know? It's insane. I said, you just should have let me do it, you know? And then, so, so, uh, uh, when Paramount found out that they'd fired me, they dropped out. They said that. And they, this is the quote, the creative guy is gone. That's what they said. Ooh. How do I know that? Because uh, what year, a few years later, I was working at Defiant, and um, I get a call from uh, uh, Victor Kaufman, big, big Hollywood big shot, okay? Uh-huh. And he was running up a thing called Savoy Pictures, him and his partner, Victor Corman. And uh, they were interested in buying Defiant. I don't have to see him. And um, uh, met him, I met him, uh, and uh, his... The, one of the guys on his board was a guy named Enrique Sr. Enrique Sr. was the number two man at Allen & Company. Allen & Company conducted the sale of Valiant. They did eventually uh, sell it to Claim Entertainment. Right, of course. We'll but get the, to that. He, he was the guy who made the $250 million deal. He's the one that told me. Yeah, we're sitting there waiting for Victor at this one meeting. He says, he says, do you know what actually happened at Valiant? I said, I said well, some of it, you know. And so he told me the whole story, including the creative guy is gone, you know, and there goes, there goes your quarter bill. Oh my so, um, so anyway, uh, you know, I mean, so I got a lot of secret information from him and, uh, uh, you know, I did, so, all right. Another pure victory. I'll lead the league. Well, before, but, uh, uh, before you left Valiant, I mean, you had some incredible stories. Some of the books that, that f- first year or so, what, what people now call pre unity Valiant is some of the best right. comic work ever done by anyone ever. The Harbinger yeah, stories thank are thank you. astoundingly we, listen, good. We have poured our hearts into it. You know, it seemed that way. Don Parlin poured his heart into it. I poured my heart into it. JJ poured her heart into it. 
uh, Leighton took vacations. I know um, it's, it was pretty obvious because after you left, there was a considerable and steep decline in quality, you know, within the ne- yeah, within well, a few months after your departure, it was pretty obvious that they well, ruined everything. And not only that, they purposely tried to get away from every single thing that you had written or created within that universe. Within a year of your departure, it was a completely different company with completely different style. Yeah. yeah well, well, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, the thing is that, uh, you know, that for those pre-Unity days and Unity, uh, I was writing almost everything. And a couple times I got people to help me, and I ended up having to do a lot of rewrites and a lot of corrections and stuff like that. I had this lady named Faye Perosich working on Shadow Man, and, and she's a lovely lady. I'm sure she's, you know, going to grow up and to be a, maybe she did already grow up to be a terrific writer, but she was pretty new. And so there were a lot of rough edges on it. I couldn't just let it go. I mean, I had to put a lot of work into it anyway. Right. And the same thing with uh, David McElhinney, who was writing Rye. Um, uh, you know, when it came to the Unity books, he said, hey, I can't do this, you do it. You know, so I did. You know, there's all kinds of credits all over these early Valiant books. And the thing is, a lot of them are phony. Why? Because I didn't have money to reward people with. Them, so I gave them credit. You know, uh-huh. I didn't have... And and also the thing is because they were I was they were Fred Pierce and I were using my overage on my quota to pay for Layton and to pay for you know uh, uh, Jade Mady and everybody right um, so it wasn't just we your had to writing give them credits yeah it wasn't just your writing your actual pay was going to pay these guys who couldn't hit their quotas yeah and so so the thing is these. Well, it wasn't their fault. They were doing the best they could. But, sure, sure. But so, so what would happen is you'd find like J.J. Jackson as an editor credit. She, shit, sorry. Um, but uh, she, she, she uh, you know, she wasn't editing. I mean, she, she, she probably could. She's a brilliant lady. Uh, but uh, no, she, she had her hands full with the production and the and the coloring and so forth. Um, and uh, you know, you see Layton's name as writer. No. Right. And you'll see, uh, you know, Perlin's name as editor or this or that. And there was a bunch of smoke screen well, I do for, wanna, you know, for the financial people. I do want to ask you a few questions about that time uh, because just as a, a fan of that time. So the first story arc for uh, the Magnus Robot Fighter was called Steel Nation. And for a brief yep. time, it was solicited that there would be a Steel Nation director's cut re-release with additional story pages and additional content. Do you happen to remember what some of that content was that was that was going to be in this uh, director's cut that was never released? When when was this announced? Uh, nineteen eighty nine or ninety. It was within that while you were there that first year. Okay. Uh, well, uh, that's something I always sort of wanted to do with a lot of books uh, when I was at Marvel. Uh, was uh, like the Secret Wars, you know. Uh, go through and and have some things changed and 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 fixed or improved or deepened or broadened or whatever right. and um stuff like that you know i mean the, I, that idea had occurred to me at marvel and that okay. seemed like a good thing to do it on because yeah, uh, uh, steel nation but with the zero issue and the four issues that the story took uh that was uh um uh it was a, you know it was a, a, a nice one story each, oh, each God, issue yeah. stood by itself each issue stood by itself i used to explain to people i said you know there's lots of ways to do continued stories i can tell you all of them. 
one way is to have each issue be a story, and yet they kind of all add up into a bigger story. Like if you're telling World War II, you know, you do the story of Pearl Harbor, you do the story of, uh, 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 you know, Invasion of Normandy, you do the Battle of the Bulge, you do the, you know, adds up to World War II. Each one is its own story. You know, that kind of thing. Um, And that's what I tried to do with Magnus. Each one was, you know, you could read it by itself and feel like you'd read a story, you know, but if you read them all, it was better. Well, that is the true comic craft way to tell a story. I mean, really, because you're for people that are buying a single issue that they want to have a complete experience for that single issue. But with Unity... With the Unity crossover, which for me was really when Valiant Comics broke, um, that's when it really started to hit the mainstream press. It was pretty much, in my opinion, yeah. the greatest comic crossover of all time. It really incorporated, it was almost biblical in the way it incorporated the same story, but from different perspectives, much like the New Testament of the, the Bible. But Unity yeah. number zero was written solely by you. But in that summer of 92 is when you had your falling out with Voyager Communications and by number one, by Unity number one, which is the 18th chapter of the Unity saga, you had a shared plot credit and the script was written by Bob Layton. So was there story? So they written by Layton. Do you know if you had a different idea of what Unity number one was going to be compared to what was actually published? What was actually published was pretty much what I did. The, the thing okay. is, uh, I don't know. I think that... Um, some of them, some some little bits that were in pieces were changed here and there because they weren't going to do a, a few different directions than I had planned. Um, but a lot of those lines are mine. I, I mean, I recognize them. I say, oh yeah, I wrote that. Um, and you know, but I, like I say, it's it's like uh, uh, some of that early stuff you can't trust the credits, right. especially after they got rid of me. You can't trust the credits. Uh, it's been mentioned by the writer Kevin Van Hook, and is it true that before you left Valiant? he was slated to take over Solar and Bob Hall was slated to take over Shadow Man. Is that true? No. Okay, so they both claimed that publicly. So you're saying that's not the uh, case? No. Because Kevin Van Hook specifically said that you had hired him to write Solar and you were already he was already coming out before your departure. I'm glad you're clearing that up. No, I, I, I didn't. I, I can't remember how we, we got Kevin Van Hook. We needed somebody and... Uh, uh, I think somebody knew him, maybe Layton. I don't know. Okay. But anyway, uh, um, uh, we hired him, and he was pretty, pretty raw. I mean, he he was rough around the edges. I certainly didn't have any big plans for him as a writer. Okay, because um, that's far <laughs> totally different. What? Well, I mean, the thing is, a lot of lot of, a lot of revisionist history was done there. I mean, Bob Layton tells everybody he was brought in as God. a co-founder. And of course, shit. And he was brought in as an inker. And why was he brought in as an inker? Because, because he he burned his bridges at DC. They would have nothing to do with him over personal matters that we don't need to discuss. Sure. And 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 uh, and then at Marvel, when after I left there, when his contract came to its end, they told him we're not renewing it, and we have no work for you. Go away. Because I mean, he he had a way of making people unhappy. No, I understand. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so at, at any rate, I mean, he had no place else to go. And I, I was startup. I needed an anchor, you know, and he shows up. I said, well, okay, I don't really love Bob thinking, but I mean, there's a lot of good things about it, but there's also, you know, some things he's pretty uh, hard headed about. Yeah. There, you're definitely but, uh, right about the revisionist history aspect. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's yeah. part of the reason. Anyway, so, oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that. So, so a lot of that stuff they 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 tried to, uh, you know, retrofit the history and and uh, you know, uh, and the whole thing about oh, uh, Jim was a control freak and and Jim, you know, we had this wonderful deal and Jim, you know, wouldn't give up any control and he's a megalomaniac and this and that. You know how he is, you know, <sighs> that kind of thing. No, and, I, and I'm, mean, like, oh, I'm uh, devastated by it. There's nothing to do with that. Yeah, I'm devastated by what happened from a historical standpoint because the truth is pretty obvious, even from the outside. But during your tenure at that time, were there any inventory stories or anything from your pre-unity time at Valiant that never saw the light of day? I know there was a character that you're working on, Vandal the Hunter, but that's all I really know. Uh, I never heard of Vandal the Hunter, and I don't oh. know anything about it. Okay, that's and, another revisionist uh, I, history I, I, thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I listen, I, it was all I could do to get out this month's books. Okay, P.S. Yes, just like at Marvel, at Valiant, every book made shipping while I was there. Right. Every book made shipping. And and so, uh, uh, you know, I mean, no, I, I haven't handled it. Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a character they were, it seemed like they were going to cook up for Barry Windsor Smith, a Conan analog before he took off to Ultraverse in 1994. But if you could, uh, if you could quantize it or put out a percentage on it, how much of the pre-unity Valiant storyline and characters did you create that came from your mind specifically? You say 80%, 90%? 99. Wow. 99. Because even if somebody else, even if somebody else worked on it, or somebody else contributed ideas. I, I wanted the, us all to work in one big room. And so I would do everything I could to include people. Like I said, we did them money. So I want everybody to feel like, you know, they're, they're part of it. And so I'd be sitting there and I'd say, I need a girl's name. You know? And somebody would say, Lucy, call her Lucy. And, you know, I mean, and, and also like EXO. Okay. EXO, for instance, uh, John Hartz and uh, Bob Layton will tell you they created EXO. Okay. Let's see what happened. What happened was, after Magnus and Solar, the next book I wanted to do was Harbinger. And Harbinger was mostly kids in ordinary clothes, because I couldn't imagine everybody putting on their spandex suits all the time. You know? Right. In a more real-world scenario. I said, don't worry. I have a way to get them into a spandex suit for a group shot. You know, <laughs> don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. But, but uh, no, I'm not going to have them behave like, like cypher kids, you know, and also something I did, it's just a test and no one has ever noticed it but me is that the first little group of Harbinger kids, the good guy kids, they're all white kids. Okay. Wasn't I, am I a racist? Hell though. What I wanted to do was I didn't want to do the one Asian, the one black person, the one Hispanic person, the one, you know, I said, no, I'm not doing, I'm not doing uh, captain planet here. You know, and P.S., almost immediately, I think second issue, their mentor is a black doctor. P.S., very soon after, you know, words, uh, we started to, uh, bringing in other characters. P.S., the other Harbingers, the ones who thought they were the good guys, you know, we had a, there were a lot more of them, so there was a, a, a big diversity. And, uh, but I did that on purpose to see if anybody had noticed, and the fact is nobody did. And, and like I said, it was only, you know, just luck of the draw, as far as I was concerned. They just, um, you know, they these are the first couple of kids they run into. That's it, right? You know, and and so you know, it's like uh, I was always like trying to 
throw down cliches and dance upon them. I, uh, well, like I said, they're uh, still considered some of the great, greatest comics created. For me, they have insane rereadability. Like you can pick up a oh, pre-Unity Valiant and you can read it. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've reread the pre-Unity Valiant comics. Hundreds of oh, times. That's, that's good. Because that's the key. Like modern comics, they've lost that. But the key is the rereadability to pick up, to still be captivated, for it to still be entertaining. The artwork was clean. The dialogue was clean. There was no sound effects. There were so many things that you updated to make it seem more mature that was noticeable yeah. at that time. But from Valiant Comics, you moved on to Defiant Comics because you had a falling out. Obviously, after Unity, uh, they had let you go. You moved on yeah. right away. You started another comic book company with a lot of the artists like David Lapham that you had worked with at Valiant. But you mentioned in past interviews that you had two options for funding for Defiant Comics. One was the River Group, who turned right. out not to be the right choice. But who was the second choice? No, it didn't. Who was the second choice that you could have chose, but instead you chose the oh, Trying to think of the name of the company. It's, it was a it's a venture and financial firm that uh, Patrickoff, Patrickoff and Company, and uh, Patrickoff, the senior Patrickoff, was one of I think Clinton's uh, financial advisors. Oh, wow. um, really nice company. Uh, and they didn't do startups, but they were interested in doing mine. And it really came down to the coin toss. And uh, ah. um, the only the only reason I went with uh, with uh, the uh, River Group was because there was a there was kind of a built-in uh, trading card license. And uh, I said, "Well, I'm good. Bring some money in quick." Um, and that turned out to be a bad idea. It was, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Valiant, my contracts. <laughs> when we did the contracts for Valiant, of course, I didn't know at that point that uh, Melanie and, and Masarsky were sleeping together. And Masarsky was my lawyer. And there were fish hooks, fish hooks planted all over in my contract right from the get-go. I mean, uh. they had this plan well, a long time before. So I, I, this, this time I made sure we had good contracts. Guess what? A contract is an invitation to a lawsuit. The contract says somebody this is a demand note. You're supposed to send money when I say so. They say no. What are you going to do? Well, your choice is to sue them or or just say, oh, okay, you know. And you know, it's it's, it's just it, the, the, the best deal I ever had didn't have a contract. It was Broadway, a handshake deal with uh, Lauren Michaels, who was an honorable man. Right. Well, your thing yeah. is, is that when. Warriors of Plasm came out and you had to change the name because of a really stupid lawsuit that Marvel yeah. Comics was trying to put you out of business. They felt very threatened because you had started one company, you were out, and here you are starting another company, which at that point was cutting into about 5% of their market share, which is huge. Uh, Valiant Comics yeah. was at that time, and here you are starting another company. So they tried to uh, silence you, neuter you with a very frivolous lawsuit. And then at, also at that time, the comics industry had been built up by speculators and it started to deflate a little bit. And I remember when Warriors of Plasm number one came out, um, there were several new companies that were popping up that were selling several hundred thousand comics. But when Warriors of Plasm number one came out, it only sold around 150,000 copies. Enough for David Lamb. No, that's not true. That's not true. Six 650,000. What? Oh my goodness. Okay. That, yeah, that's yeah. definitely and something. And also, also, 
But like you say, the market collapsed. The month that Plasm One came out, that the very month was the month where the whole industry fell off the edge of a table. Only a few weeks before, uh, 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 Bill Shanis, I was down at Diamond for some, and Bill Shanis sat with me. He says, he says, he says I can confidently guarantee you that you're going to sell near 3 million copies of your first issue. And I said, wow, great. 650 is not bad, no. but it's not 3 million. Right. And, and so, uh, so the reason was it took them by surprise, too. Of course, the collapse was not only because of speculators. Well, not speculators. I mean, they did the death of Superman, and they sold in 14 million copies into the stores. The stores couldn't sell them through. They couldn't sell them through. So every store in America had long boxes full of death of Superman sitting in the back, you know. Right. And all the people who bought it and thought they could, oh, it's, it's collectors. I will use this to put my kids through college. They go back and and they can't even sell it for a nickel, <laughs> you know. And, and and then and then they doubled they then okay it's the rebirth of Superman and so a lot of these people think you know it's like you know, the gamblers got to double down maybe you maybe you make some of your money back that didn't sell through either oh, they sold millions and millions of copies and and so uh, you know it was it, it was all these all these stores are choking on their inventory they can't order new comics because they can't pay for the old ones <laughs> you know and and so uh, yeah so the, the industry if you call the peak. 100%, it dropped down to around 20% in a very short time. Yeah, and I remember you were and around, you I'm sorry, you were around 40 at that time when you started Defiant Comics, and so that must have been really hard for you because you created, you know, two of the properties that came out of Defiant Comics that were, were the real gems were Warriors of Plasm and Dark Dominion, which I've mentioned to you prior to the interview were two highly influential comics on me. Warriors of Plasm was so advanced in its uh, world building and its design. And the artwork was so exceptionally phenomenal. It still uh, holds up to this day. Oh my God. It's like, it's a like masterpiece okay. artwork. And then dark dominion, the concept of a character getting over fear, not really having any superpower per se, except for getting over the vibration of fear, which allowed him to access other dimensions. Yeah. Well, that was part of that was step echo. Cause uh, I sat down with Steve and he was going to write, he was going to draw a book for us. I sat down and, and said, Steve, what kind of character would you like to do? Cause it's described in generalities, but what sort of character, you know, he says, I don't want anybody who wears a uh, superhero suit. Okay. He said, uh, I don't want the end of a hit by lightning or a meteor or something like that. He says, I want him to somehow, you know, create himself, you know, make, make his himself, uh, yeah, superhuman, and I don't mean with chemicals and injections. And stuff. Right. Just, just find a way, and uh, and 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 a few other things. And I said, oh, okay. So then I went off and I created the Dark Dominion thing, and um, and it had everything in it that he said. And I did that that quantum plane thing, quantum shift, uh, where you, there's a reality that we can't see that's all around right. us. And um, and that's why Steve left. <laughs> He came into me. He says he's halfway through the first, the zero issue, the trading card issue, and he, he puts pages on my desk and he says, "I can't do this." I said, "What?" And he says, "I can't, I can't do this." I said, "Steve, why?" He says, "Because I'm Aristotelian and this is Platonic." <laughs> I said, "What?" what? I said, "You have to explain that one, pal." And he said, "He said Aristotle believed what you see is what you get. That's it." 
Plato believed in the, sort of the real world, the, the world of the mind, where, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect circle, but you can imagine, you know. And he said, he said I, I don't want to do that. I said, you can't do this to me, Steve. I said, you can't just walk out in the middle of the story. I said, we've already solicited this. You know, you got, you got to help me out here. So he says, hmm, um, all right, you know, I'll, uh, I'll finish this one. I said, good. Anyway, he's getting offers. The Italian, he needed the work. He, 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 they, I got him back tomorrow, and then after I left, a little while after I left, they just cut him loose. He's a founding father. You I know. Fool. You don't cut him loose. That's kind of like Johnny and, and Cash's story at, in a way. Yeah, and then he showed up at at, at Valiant, and uh, he, he, Steve's fussy. He only wanted to, he was fussy. He only wanted to do um, good. Good guys were all good, and bad guys were all bad. He didn't want to do gray area, conflicted characters. So we happened to be doing wrestling books. I said, hmm, faces, heels, okay. I said, I would like to do this to you, so I can do that. Okay. So he did some great stuff for us. And then later, uh, he did Magnus for us, because I convinced him that Magnus was all good. Yeah, I and, didn't notice um, that he did work for you during that time. Yeah, I did uh, quite a bit. And then after I left Valiant, they cut him loose. Idiots. <sighs> and, and so, because uh, he was doing good stuff, and he was being inked by Ralph Reese, and it looked great I mean, you know? anyway um <laughs> yeah so 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 uh so anyway yeah, you know and he shows up at, at defiant but by that time he'd started to get some some other work he wasn't like desperate for work anymore and and uh, uh so when he decided to, to bail out uh, uh he had other offers so he, he wasn't working for he would have i mean if, if he you know had didn't have other stuff to do but but he did and p.s he showed up again at broadway and then we we were talking about things we could do together um he uh, i said i said Steve, you know what i'd love to do is i'd love to publish mr a he said nobody touches mr a which I was said, his creator right, own character yeah i said here's the deal i said you own everything you own all rights you own everything except we get to print it once okay i said then it's everything's yours i said uh, furthermore I said, you go find a lawyer, somebody you like, somebody you trust. You find a lawyer, and I'll pay for them. And you make have your lawyer make sure that contract is airtight, you know. And I said, this is so. You know what do you think? No, oh, no, no. <laughs> so a couple of weeks later, it comes in with a completed issue of Mister A, written and drawn. Oh wow! And he thought you might look at read this. I said, okay, brilliant, great. He loved Mister A. He really poured his heart into it. And so uh, we were going to publish that, but then uh, by that time the company got sold to Golden Books, and Golden Books didn't want to be in the comic book business. They sold us along with a whole bunch of entertainment properties. They, they like we it was us, Lassie, The Lone Ranger, a thousand claymation movies, some other movies, a music company. And this is Broadway sold. that you're talking about, right? Yeah, it was okay. all sold uh, to to uh, Golden Books Family Entertainment. Well, before uh, and, uh, before. Uh, we went on to Broadway comics. You were still working at defiant comics, but it did close its doors before the big crossover event. That was schism. Some of the artwork has made it out. In fact, one of the covers is currently on eBay right now, but um, mm, okay. is it, uh, was it hard for you to put so much work again into another company like defiant? Cause again, it seemed like you poured your heart and soul into it and then to have it. Yeah, I did another within another year or so. Yeah, it was a year and a half. But but the, the thing is, like, uh, I I was not ready to 
be writing six books a month anymore. And um, I, I wanted to, we were much better financed and I wanted to get other people to write. We got Len Wein. That, I'll give that mixed reviews. Uh, we had Chris Claremont write a, a book for us a little bit. Right. Um, had a couple other people. And uh, uh, and then David Lapham started writing Plasm, which and he did it great. Oh, um, yeah. He's a genius. Yeah. Yeah, he's tremendous. Anyway, um, so, uh, you know, I was trying to be more like the editor. I was doing plenty of writing, trust me. But, but I was trying to just, you know, uh, hire people and train them. And, uh, and yeah, I did my best. I did the best I could do. And we had trouble getting artists because at that time, um, before the big crash, uh, uh, you, you, you couldn't, arcs weren't available. Everybody was booked, you know, you was having struggling to get people on, uh, got some good ones. We got this, this, uh, newfangled kid, JG Jones. He turned out pretty good. Well, it's really interesting that you bring that up because, in my office, I only own one piece of comic book art, original comic book art, and it is Dark Dominion, number seven, page four, created by J.G. Jones, his first professional work. It's hanging in my office right now. Cool. <laughs> He's a great guy. He, 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 he did great things for us. He was, he was a nice guy. Nice guy. And so um, David Lapham recently released The Pencils, for the completed Warriors of Plasm number 14 without a plot. Do you happen to know where that story was going, the Warriors of Plasm story? Do you have anything that you want to share about Defiant Comics that maybe people don't know or realize about the plots and things like that? Well, I mean, I was I was pretty hands-on with all the plots and creation. I did a lot of, a lot of the creative stuff myself. And now, like I said, I try to find writers and uh, artists. Um, and uh i was trying to teach janet jackson to write and uh she she has uh written some things and not so much comics since then but uh um some short stories and stuff and she's gotten pretty pretty dangerous um but uh you know i mean uh, we were trying to build build a company and then they two two things happened uh we had a we had a deal with mattel toys Guaranteeing us nine million dollars, okay, uh, for Plasm, and Marvel's lawsuit against us killed that um, because we missed we missed our window. What happened was, I knew this guy in the toy biz. His name was Ralph Schaefer, and uh, he worked for a company called TCFC, which stands for Those Characters from Cleveland, and they they created a lot of toy characters. Um, uh, and they did licensing too. They created a lot of toy characters, uh, uh, like Holly Hobby, which was based on a children's book, um, strawberry shortcake. Um, they were, uh, partners in Care Bears with Bernie Loomis. Um, but I got to know him too. What a guy, uh, genius in the toy biz. Um, anyway, so this guy, it was, he had, he, first of all, he had great people around him. He had, he had toy developers, toy designers, right? And, um, and his, the trouble was that they, they'd hit some hard times because TCFC, when it was creating characters like Care Bears and stuff like, and doing lots of licensing, I mean, they would go on these retreats to Aruba and stuff. Just the creative people just go off and think for two weeks and you know, stuff like that because <laughs> they were rolling in dough. And, and then, 
you know, it started to dry up a little bit. And and so Ralph and his business, uh, there were two presidents, co-presidents, and one was the business guy and the other was Ralph. He was a creative guy. And so they decided, hey, why, why are we creating all this stuff for other people? Let's start a toy company. And so they did start a toy company. It's called Amtoy. And because uh, TCFC was owned by American Greetings. Um, they called it Amtoy. They had one sort of minor hit. It was called Mad Balls. Actually created a Mad Ball. I remember that. Yeah, he said, he said uh, Ralph said, oh, well, we'll have to you know, get a contract to pay you. And I said, no, it's free. You know, keep it. It's fine. I just threw in a suggestion. And they, they made the toy. Uh, it was called a spitball. It was a mad ball that you put a smaller mad ball in its mouth. You squeeze the big mad ball, and the little ball goes like that. And um, uh, yeah, well, I'm crazy. Anyway, it's uh, <laughs> a great so, idea. So, but I knew Ralph. I knew Ralph pretty well. And at one time, there was going to be a joint venture between TCFC and Marvel. This is 1980, late '86, early '87. Why? Because we had done some work on their characters, like Strawberry Shortcake and stuff like that, and they they liked us. And, and Ralph met me; he liked me, and, and uh, he he was man, he was sharp. He was a genius. But uh, so anyway, they said, "Hey, let's do something together because you guys know boy stuff, and we do mostly girl stuff." And I said, "Yeah, okay, we can do that." Um, so we actually had one meeting, and uh, didn't nail anything down at all, but just sort of talked in general about what might make a good boy's toy and, 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 and stuff like that. So when I created Plasm, a lot of that general education was in my head and I, I deliberately made it what in the toy business is called toyetic. And so, uh, uh, so, okay. Amtoy failed. The bad balls was a small success. They tried a couple other things. Nothing worked. Um, and, uh, he was in a position where he had to lay people off and stuff. I often wondered, like when I was desperate for work and eating rice and beans, why I never got a call from Ralph, you know, since he thought highly of me. And the fact is he was letting go of people he'd worked with for years and he just couldn't add somebody, you know? Interesting. Anyway. All right. So, 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 so at Marvel, at Marvel, we had this one meeting. We talked in general about stuff, nothing specific. Um, and then uh, um, and one of the things Ralph said is, hey, so boys, he, he, they like gooey stuff. They like, you know, uh, blood and guts and, and bones and things. And I, I stuck in my head. So anyway, you know, then uh, actually right, right about then, uh, uh, that's when they fired me. And uh, it's almost like the uh, Paramount deal. Um, they called Ralph and they said, look, we've got this new editor in chief, uh, Tom DeFalco. And, uh, you know, so he'll be taking Jim's place and working with you. And he said, you don't have anybody I'm interested in working with. And he hung up. How do I know that? He told me. So anyway, uh, um, uh, so anyway, all right, here we are. Years later, they started this thing in toy thing. It failed. And, uh, but he was still coming to toy fair. And so he was going to be in New York city. And, and, uh, as usual, we, we, every year we get together and have a, have a steak over at the palm too. And so, okay, meet him over there. <clears throat> and this is what I'm just starting uh, to find. I still, I don't think we'd publish anything. We certainly didn't publish anything. And um, so he's telling me his tale of woe, you know, about how the toy business had you know, come, kind of gone sour a little bit. And then they, then they hadn't come up with a hit. And, and 
uh, it was, I said, well, I'm starting this new comic book company. And I said, I got this property. I said, uh, I'll tell you about it. So I told him about Plasm. And uh, he said, well, that sounds great. And I said, I said, well, some of it, I feel a little guilty because, you know, you, you said things you taught me. You, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know. Yeah, for sure. Stealing, stealing your ideas. He said, it's nothing like what we talked about. He said, this is totally different. He said, this is nothing like it. Don't worry about it. Forget it. It's, he said, this is completely different from anything I ever imagined. And I said, I said, well, great. I said, how would you like to be the licensing agent? He said, what? And I said, and help us make a toy. He said, oh, okay, really? I said, yeah. And uh, cause I'm throwing him a lifeline, you know? Sure. Sure. And, um, and, and, and he, he said, he said, well, that's, that's great. Standard terms. I said, no, 50, 50. He said, we do the publishing and all the media licensing and toy 50, 50. And he said, uh, he said, that's too much. I said, no, it isn't. It's not enough, but you know, it's the best I can do. And, um, uh, so anyway, he, we sent him stuff and they, they were on the phone, faxed and stuff back and forth. And he got his toy inventor guys to work on it, uh, coming up with toys to go along with this idea. So finally we had a, we had a meeting actually. I took David Lapham. He insisted he had to have his wife along. So I took, we took both of them and had a meeting in Cleveland and, uh, talked about the toy and they showed us some of these little prototypes. Made. It was really cool. And, um, and so he said, he said, well, who did it pitch to? And I said, Mattel. He said, he said, why Mattel? I said, I don't have any boys' toys. You know, Hasbro has boys' toys. Kenner has boys' toys. So what does Mattel have? Barbie. You know, and He-Man. Big deal. And and so, uh, so he said, okay. He said, um, he said, uh, he said, all right, well, who should we talk to there? I said, let's call Jill. Jill Barat. And he said, you know Jill? I said, yeah. I said, I know Jill. And I said, I'm sure you know Jill. He said, yeah, I know her. I said, I think the call's better coming from you, you know, because he's a toy guy, right? you know? And, and so uh, he said, all right. So he called and he set up a meeting and then he asked me, he says, okay, if we pitch one of ours while we're there, I said, yeah, fine. Okay, sure. So we go there and Jill has this big boardroom and she has all of her girls toy people in there. And Ralph pitches this ballerina toy that they invented. And then she just shuts him down. She says, yeah, here's what's wrong with it. Da, 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 da. No good. Thanks. So then I pitched Plasm and they're, she brought in the boys toys guys and girls toys people in a way. I, she brought in all the boys toys guys. I mean, all of them, all of the boys toys executives. And I'm, I'm pitching this and I get done pitching Plasm and she says, here's how it's going to work. You know, uh, you get five points and we get five points. Each of us is going to have to give up the percentage. Each of us has to give up a point to Margaret. That would be Fox Kids Network, Margaret Lesh. Uh, each of us is going to have to give up a, a, a point to Margaret to get it on TV. She, she said, we'll take care of all that stuff. She said, we'll give you a million-dollar advance at a $3 million guarantee. And she said, I, I, she said, I'm prepared to guarantee international will be at least the same. And domestic ancillaries will be about the same. She said, it always is. And so I said, well, it's 9 million bucks. And she said, she's, yeah, she said, that's just the beginning. She said, it's going to be much bigger than that. She said, that's, that's anticipating sales of 50 million or so. She said, she's baloney. It'll be much bigger than that. And, uh, I said, Oh, so she says, okay. She says, 
leave your business guy. You and Schaefer get the hell out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Schaefer and I got the hell out of there. Right. And, uh, uh, we left his business partner. It was there for the financial guy who was going to handle the licensing. And, stuff. and so for a couple of weeks there, we thought we made it. And then, uh, then all of a sudden I get a call from Terry Stewart. He says, we're saying, I said, why? You know, he said, well, you just said, launched this trading card thing called plasm. And we have a character called plasma. So where, what, where? Oh, it and was just said, atrociously right. bad because it was a Marvel UK property that had absolutely no relation to the Marvel universe. It didn't even look like your properties, not even close. At that point, it wasn't even a property. It was a name <laughs> registered with intent to use. You can register a trademark with intent to use. They registered the trademark in the UK with intent to use, and they hadn't done the creative work yet. Oh my God. It's a Paul Neary, I think, uh, and other people, they, they hadn't even begun on it. You know, they were still talking about what it might be. So anyway, he says, we have to sue you. And I said, I said, Terry, I said, you got a black knight. DC's got a black knight. You, you got wonder man. They've got wonder woman. You've got power man. They've got power girl. You know, I said, I said, don't, don't tell me this is too close. And he said, he's no, no, sorry. I have to sue you. I said, this is about, you know, putting me out of business before we can eat, eat a chunk of your market share. And he's no, it's, it's really just too close, Jim. I said, all right. Fine. And, uh, he says, oh, he says, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we should get the lawyers together. I said, all right, fine. So we arranged, Dick Winston arranged to get our lawyers to talk to their lawyers. And uh, they, their lawyers came back and said, well, they said it maybe if you added na- added words to the title. I said, all right, we'll call it Warriors of Plasm. Mattel liked that name better than just Plasm. Yeah, Warriors it definitely had a more marketable ring to it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, their lawyers agreed. Um, we drew up the documents, sent them to them, and never heard from them. Weeks pass. And meanwhile, we're working on the launch of Plasma Number 1, which is going to come out, I think, in August. And uh, so after we didn't hear back from the lawyers, they weren't returning calls and stuff like that. Winston, the smart guy, he comes in and he says, I know what they're up to. I said, what? He said, they're going to wait till the last minute and file a temporary restraining order and keep us from shipping our book. And if we don't get the revenues from that book, we're dead. <sighs> okay. Now what are we going to do? I said, I'm going to call Marie Jose Daniel, who's our representative up at the printer cable car. And, uh, so I called her. I said, this is what's going on. And she said, I'll take care of it. And she, I, I said, well, how are you going to take care of it? She said, you don't need to know that. <laughs> I said, right. No, don't need to know. Fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, um, sure enough, the day comes where Plasm One is going to ship, okay, from Cavecore, right? It's just about to be loaded on the trucks, right? And Marvel's agents arrive with a temporary restraining order, and uh, to restrain Warriors of Plasm. And uh, Marie Jose said, "We will be happy to, you know, stop the shipping of Warriors of Plasm." However. Or is a plasma number one is interlaced on every single pack uh, pallet that has a Marvel comic book on it. You stop theirs. You stop all of yours. Ah, oh, you had them so, there. Yeah. So when I found that, I said, God, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she had, she had made sure that plasma was interlaced on all there are lots and lots of pallets, all of the pallets that had Marvel comics and they're all interlaced, you know? 
and they think they, there's no way you could get them all. Yeah, it would be insane. Like to get them on the trucks. Right. So, so, so anyway, they, they withdrew their temporary restraining order and then sued us for temporary injunction. And that case dragged on until, I don't know what, the months. And then we missed our window with Mattel because it has to, the toy development cycle is a long cycle. And right. once you miss that window, it's, that's it, you're gone. Well, when you had to close the doors at Define because of the legal fees, which were over 300000 and then not that's having... True the revenue in order to maintain who did you sell the defiant properties to? Cause I know that you made a deal with the river group where you retained ownership of some of the characters, but I also know that you sold the warriors of plasm and the plasm concept, I believe to golden books, but who owns uh, properties like dark dominion and Charlemagne and things like that? Well, uh, you're mixing up Broadway and, and defiant. I mean, the thing is uh, when, when defiant closed, since the River Group had funded us with this demand note that they refused to, uh, to uh, um, you know, follow, um, a, contract, a clause in the contract said that in, in a case of default, if we couldn't pay them, that all intellectual property rights belonged to the River Group. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, the thing is, uh, um, Broadway when we were sold to Golden Books, those properties wound up with Random House for a while. And then I'm not sure whether the properties are owned by Classic Media. They were somehow Classic Media, which was a licensing company run by Eric Ellen Bogan. Um, I believe they I got bought for. out by uh, oh. DreamWorks. Yeah, okay. Well, so they're, they're, they're DreamWorks properties now. And the Defiant properties belong uh, to the River Group. Um, Except uh, uh, the uh, um, I don't know what they did with them. I have no idea. So they to but, this day, you believe that the River Group retains all the rights to the Defiant comics that you created. But there was a rumor that you were going to incorporate some of the Defiant characters into the Broadway universe, which you founded after Defiant Comics in 1995. Is that correct? No, that's not true. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. We, we had no rights to those characters. They 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 were they were gone. I, mean, I don't know um, if the River Group disposed of them or, or or what they did. I have no idea. At Broadway, I had a handshake deal with Eric Ellenbog. See, Lauren Michaels owned Broadway Video Entertainment. Right. They owned Broadway Video Entertainment, owned a music company, some movies, Lassie, Lone Ranger, us, and um, uh, we never had a contract. But I had kind of a handshake with Eric Ellenbogen that I'd always have a retained interest in in uh, all the characters. And uh, so, but, um, you know, he went on to classic media. He, he wasn't there anymore. Um, those properties, when Random House bought them, I don't think they knew that he had a handshake of strings attached, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I mean, like, could I go after them or whatever? Yeah, if I had all the money in the world, you know, you know, wanted to could get Eric to admit it and blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know. Yes, Eric, Eric, Eric had a circuitous path. He actually was uh, running Marvel for a while, CEO of Marvel. Well, it seemed really interesting at the time in 1995 that you were able, in an industry downturn, to find new financing again to launch yet another company. How were you able to do that so easily at that time? Well, 
one one group we talked to when we were raising money for Defiant was Broadway Video, oh, and um, and and so they they really uh, they they didn't their their offer was not good, and so we you know nice to meet you, see ya. Um, and then uh, later um, uh, the uh, um, when when Defiant was going out of business. Made sure everybody got paid, and all the little suppliers got paid. I stiffed the printer for one hundred eighty-six thousand uh-huh. dollars, and I, you know, so and, and I, I called them. I said we we had potential financing coming in from the boy pictures, and that deal got ruined by Dan Shedrick and the River Group. And I thought I'd be able to pay you, but I can't. And uh, but we paid we paid all the employees. It didn't have any payroll liabilities. Yeah, Cubicore was fine. I, you know, they're fine. Cubicore is fine. Yeah. 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 So, so, anyway, so anyway, I called him up and I said, I said, well, it's just, it fell through and it wasn't so happening. And so, uh, uh, Marie Jose said, uh, she said, she free for lunch on Thursday or for dinner on Thursday. And I said, sure. You know, so uh, she said, we'll come to New York and take you to dinner. I'll send you a note, tell you where. So he took me to Beach. It was one of the most expensive Italian restaurants in the city. And, um, so I, I go there and I'm sitting with Marie Jose and, uh, what's his name? They heard that her boss says so there's like four of them, right. And we're talking about what happened and this and that and I'm thinking, oh God, here we go. You know? Um, so, uh, then not one of them, I can't remember what, what the guy's name is. He, he said, he said, he's a look, he said, you brought us millions, millions and millions of dollars worth of business over the years. He said, um, and, uh, he said, you're going to be back in business and you'll bring us more. He said, so we look at this as a cost of doing business. He said, it's no big deal. And oh, wow. then not only did they buy me dinner, they gave me a present, a little pocket secretary thing that did like a leather case for that holds sort of index card size cards and has my initials on them. And, and you know, they gave me a present. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. So anyway, so anyway, the, the thing is that did come true. I have brought them since then millions of dollars for the business. And do you think I'll ever go anywhere else? No, I don't think they will. Well, usually people stick with people that bring them excessive benefits. Like that. Yeah. And they, and they, 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 they do, they do great work and, and, uh, and they, they've adapted to the small press press runs for the um, comics sure. and stuff. And they're good people. And then, uh, so, so, I mean, you know, I will always get my first shot. My first call is to Capricorn. Right. And, uh, well, yeah. after, uh, so anyway, after oh, I'm sorry, cool. after Broadway comics folded because the industry was already in a downturn at that point. And by the end of 96, it was literally on extreme life support. But a, another weird twist happened in your career because in 1999, after acclaim, the video game company had purchased Valiant comics and created acclaim comics, they called you back to work on Valiant again. And this time it was a supposedly relaunch unity 2000, but only three issues were published. Was that strange for you to, after all that, after Valiant defiant Broadway, then a few years go by and here's Valiant, that current iteration of Valiant calling you back. One, one correction. Uh, Broadway did not fail. Broadway did not go down. What happened was the whole entertainment group, us included, was sold to Golden Books Family Entertainment. So they had a little meet and greet. 
and I met the CEO, a guy named Dick Snyder, who was he used to lobby and campaign to be number one in Business Week's worst ten bosses list every year. Okay, they used to publish an article the, the the ten worst bosses in America. He 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 actually campaigned to be number one, <laughs> and is famously kind of a nasty guy. And um, I mean, for instance, so you worked at Summer Schuster, right? So uh, his rule was that if on any floor he got onto the elevator, everyone else had to get off. And if you didn't, you're fired. He okay. was that hard. You know. huh? Oh, no, he was. Yeah, he, he did it on purpose. He was trying to be the worst boss in America. And he was like every year. you know. And, uh, and so anyway, so I'm at this meeting. There he is. And I walked over and said, I said, Snyder, I'm, I'm Jim Shooter. I run the comics company. He says, quote, we don't want to publish comics. We're going to put you out of business. Or we're going to close you down. That's a close you down. And oh, nice. I'm like, nice to meet you too. You know, I mean, <laughs> not even hello. Just, we don't, we don't want to be in the comic business. We're going to close you down. You know, like, oh, all right. Hmm. And then, okay, sorry, here I go. I'm, I'm, then I'm freelance. I'm getting gigs here and there, doing, you know, getting by somehow. And, uh, and then uh, I get this call and I'm offered this gig. The guy, the editor's name was Mike Martz, later went to D.C. Um, and uh, he calls me up and um, he says, you know, he wants me to, wants to have lunch with me. So it was me and him, I think his publisher or somebody, I don't know. Um, and what he said he wanted me to do was fix it. You know, he said, he said uh, okay, it's just chaos. He said, it, it, you know, after you, it's all this stuff that make any sense and, it, you know, bad stories and weird stuff. He said, he said, we need you to make the universe right, you know, to do like a Unity type book, call it Unity 2000 and, and fix it. I said, I can do that. So anyway, yeah, it was pretty good. I thought, all right, fine. So I wrote all the plots. I wrote all six plots. I think they're on my blog. I think you can get them on my blog. Or if you can't, I'll send them to you. If you no, you, you, they're out there. No. The the plots are available. And you did script the first three or four issues, though the first three only got published. I scripted, no, I scripted five, I think. Um, the oh, last okay. one was just a plot. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, Starlin was drawing it. Rubenstein was inking it. Um, and only three got published, and then they went out of business. Uh, but basically, the whole plan was to was to kind of do, uh, do unity again. Basically, I mean, only this time it was the good guy who was going to create the new universe, uh, you know, not not Eric Pierce. And um, uh, and I had all kinds of fun stuff in it. I thought, and uh, uh, just yeah, it's a shame that it didn't get never finished. Got there. Jim Starlin yeah, did release all the artwork, you know, for all the six issues. So it, people have created kind of like a pastiche version of the complete six issues. But would you ever, if let's say like somebody created like a Kickstarter project and somehow got the funding together to pay you to script the last part or finish Unity 2000 as a fan project, would you ever do something like that? Yeah, if, well, if I, you know, assuming I have time and I, I, I have I have a bunch of stuff to do, but I don't have anything, you know, it's... Uh, hard deadlines right now. Yeah. It's uh, just, seems, you know, it just seems like one of those unfinished things. It's kind of like, you know, the defiant comics seem like you, if you were a person purchasing it and reading it at the time, it, it ended so abruptly. It seemed like, Oh my God, like your, like your wife died in a car crash or something. 
you know, and that's yeah. kind of how it felt with uh, Unity 2000. You know, it took them six right. months to release the third issue. And then after that, it was like, it was just this dangling story. Yeah. And if you've seen the, the, um, uh, the, the plots, I mean, you know what the, what the story is, how it comes out. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think I did five issues of script. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I have to go uh, back and look. I don't remember specifically, but I know I've read them several times. But that must have been weird. Like, here's here you are back at Valiant. Again, strangely, something that came out of your life, your circumstances, and your mind. And here you are working yeah. again. But then they went under. But here's something I really, really want to know. In, in, because this is, it doesn't, I'm not sure how this happened. But in 2005, after Acclaim went bankrupt, the Acclaim properties, all the Valiant properties, except for the gold key properties went up for auction and sold for around $500,000. Now, as a person that has a really strong history of finding financing, were you aware yeah. of this auction? And if so, why didn't you participate personally? Well, um, I don't, I don't know exactly what I was doing at the time. Uh, and, uh, the number I was told by the people who bought the stuff was 2 million. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So okay. I, then they're the people who bought it. Were they lying? I have no way to, no way to know if, if that was an accurate number, but, um, uh, I, I, I might've been busy with other stuff. Um, so you weren't really aware I, that I, it was up for auction at that time. I might, I don't think I was following things too closely right about then. But, and I honestly, uh, you know, so I bought them. All right. What that would mean, let's say it was, let's say I could bid $600,000 and I could probably raise 600,000. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. And, and let, let's say I did that. And well, then I'd have the obligation to make some money with them so I could pay back the 600,000, you know, that I raised. And so I would have, to, I would have to publish or a miracle would have to happen. I'd have to get a movie deal or, you know, something. Right. Um, so, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I did, in other words, it was, it was uh, okay, so you buy it, and then what? It was probably too big a mountain to climb. I don't remember, like I say, specifically what I was doing at the time. Well, you know, the, there's like, a, you know, the inside me, the, the Jim Shooter fan is just like, oh, whoa, please, like somehow going back in time, to coaxing you to buy that. I don't know <laughs> where that is. But here's the thing is that, you know, new owners did purchase it, and they offered you a job back. And for a very brief time, you were, again, editor-in-chief at Valiant. Was that weird for you on a manifestation level as a person that's like creating your own life? Here you are, time number three, back at Valiant Comics. Yeah. That must have been really strange for you overall. Well, it was. I mean, like I got a call from this guy. I think his name is Jason Katari. And uh, he uh, uh, asked if I'd you know, have lunch with him as part of in the city. And I'm like, all right, fine. So when, and at first they were asking me if I could write a screenplay you know do a treatment of a screenplay uh for the characters that they, they told me they bought the characters and they, and they would i write a screenplay you know i said i could do that sure i mean i've written three or four and uh none none made the screen but that's no that's normal in hollywood sure anyway uh you can do a thousand thousand until you become william goldman you do a thousand and you hope one lands on the right desk somewhere but at any rate uh so uh, we had a meeting about that. Um, I think we maybe talked a couple more times about it. Nothing ever came of it. I mean, they never actually made it. 
an offer and, you know, and uh, just initiated it. So then time passes, and there were a couple other meetings where they would talk about publishing and this and that, and, uh, you know, I, I really wasn't interested. Um, and uh, so then they went ahead and started a publishing company anyway. But so they, uh, nice people, Jason and Dinesh, with one exception. But but uh, basically nice people except for one bad thing they did, which is I'll tell you later. Sure. Um, uh, so, so they hired this guy Walter Black and to be the publisher. Walter Black had published. Uh, novels, uh, you know, just books. I mean, he'd never done any comics or magazines or printed anything in color for that matter, uh, except the cover, you know? Um, and, uh, um, he was going to be their publisher and I'm sure he's good at publishing books, but he didn't know anything about comics. Nice man. Um, and they hired some marketing guy. His last name was, it was a funny last name. It was like toy or something like that. And, and they, they had, they had some other, they had a, a lady who was sort of a, everything else, you know, and then they had these offices, temporary offices on seventh Avenue and, you know, a temporary office space place. And, uh, I think that was all, I'm not sure if they had anybody else. Anyway. All right. So, so they, uh, they called me up and they said they wanted to start publishing. Um, and uh, so they wanted to hire me as editor in chief. And I said, well, I'll listen. So they made me an offer and returned down. And, uh, so I did this like, maybe four times. I said, look, look, guys, I'm not really that eager to, you know, to do this. And then anyway, finally they make me an offer. It's dead. And so my terms were, this is just us talking. Okay. No contract ever. Okay. So just us talking. I, I said, um, I said, all right, here's the deal. No writing. I don't write anything. I'm the editor, you know, hire writers. I'll train the writers. You know, I'll supervise. And uh, if we get big enough, we'll have editors under me that can, you know, do the actual hands-on work. I said, I don't want to, you know, I do not want to be grinding away writing, you know, again. I'm not, you know, not ready for that. Fine, fine, fine. Okay. So I took the job. And uh, it lasted seven months. And and so I, I had to go to, the, I lived in Jersey at that point. I had to go to the city every day. And... Um, Fine, took the bus, you know, and walked over from uh, uh, Port Authority uh, to at the Seventh Avenue. It wasn't that far. And uh, uh, so anyway, uh, so I go there, and I'm in a room with one, two, three, at least three, and often four or five people because they get interns and then people there. And I'm in the corner. This is not a big room. And the first thing they say to me is, oh, we need you to write a presentation for, you know, and I'm like, I'm not supposed to write, guys. You know, no, we're we need a Hollywood presentation for, you know, blah, blah, blah. and every day it's like, it's like, uh, well, can you write us a script for the EXO? Can you, can you fix these properties? So they had this guy, I think, Gomez, who they hired and paid a ridiculous amount of money to fix all of the characters that, like I was going to do with Unity 2000. And he it's butchered it. I mean, it was stupid. Oh, God. And so I'm taking these these stories. Some of them are good. I mean, like uh, Quantum and Woody was good, except that since he had essentially no editor, uh, Christopher Priest used to be Jim Owsley, used to work for me. Right. Um, Christopher Priest, he was doing this sketch comedy blackout technique. 
great. Yeah, like, that was prevalent that, for that. So, so the story sold, told out of order and stuff like that. And number one thing is he has the first issue where they get this, they have these bands that have to clam together every 24 hours and they have some kind of cosmic power, right? Yeah. Well, as of the second issue, he forgot that they had superpowers. And he has them like climbing a building on a rope or, you know, it just, they never do anything super for like six or seven issues. <laughs> and I think finally somebody pointed out to him, aren't these supposed to be super people, right? So then they have started having them do some, some super things. Meanwhile, all this history they have is unfolding in these little sketch comedy, blackout comedies, uh, blackout sketch comedy, you know, blocks. Yeah, the formatting, yeah. Yeah, so, so anyway, the trouble is that it's real hard to keep track of what you're doing, you know. So you have um, uh, Woody uh, leaving prep school. He's got a jacket, you know, jacket with a blazer, and he looks like he's in his least teens. Um, leaving uh, Connecticut and, you know, his, where he had a wealthy life and, and uh and and then he he and his mother in some subsequent blackout sketch uh, moved to Harlem where he is suddenly five years old. <laughs> what? He forgot how old he was in the previous segment. Oh my god! And so I'm trying to make sense out of this because there's stuff that he does in Connecticut that he have to be an older kid to do, and there's stuff that he does in Harlem that he had to be like a, a little kid, you know. So I figured it out. I found a way to do it. And, um, but I mean, that stuff, the load of the stuff here right there was great. So it's just a matter of like, you know. So you were like out, you know, filtering out all the acclaimed comic books, all the stuff that was getting ready. I for was making this, it make sense. Yeah. This new, I was making it make sense. Ninjack made no sense at all. Ninjack was like a really lame parody of a really bad Kung Fu movie. And, and, uh, but the art was great because Casada drew it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That era. That was the only, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jim. I was going to say, and then, and then, uh, uh, even, uh, bloodshot. I mean, if you read bloodshot, I mean, it's, it's, it's all these kind of cliche gangsters and, and oh yeah, it's terrible. It doesn't make any sense at all. So I made it make sense. I made it, I made it good. I made, uh, uh, Ninjak good. You know, I came up with, I mean, I'm, I'm a research guy. I, I, you know, okay, his name is Ninjack. Why is it Ninjack? Right? What the hell is Ninjack? Well, it's supposed to be Ninja right? and the Union Jack. Yeah, right. That makes sense. <laughs> but, but, but at any rate, the thing is, so I came up with, you know, there are 10 ranks of Ninja. And his teacher says, some say 15. I don't know what they're talking about. He says, 10 ranks of Ninja. Okay. And, um, after he passes his tests and stuff, uh, uh, the teacher invents a new rank for him, the 11th rank, right? Okay. K is the 11th letter of the alphabet. Okay, so he doesn't want to write 11. Uh, yeah, they actually K. use that. They actually use that storyline in the Valiant Entertainment, as it's called, in the Valiant Entertainment Ninja. Oh, I, I, that's me. That's me. Yeah, anyway, they use uh, that. But so, so he, he signs his name once, Ninja. K, and the person who reads it takes it as Ninjack, and then it becomes a Ninjack to him. Oh my God! Ninja. They gave you no credit for that, by the way. No, I don't. But they're right. I'll tell you what. I, I, I have done so much stuff that other people's names are on. Other people took credit for. Other people, 
you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't exist anymore. But I also did EXO. I mean, EXO was great. The, the way we wrote it the first time, I made it better. I made it uh, much better uh, with uh, how the alien comes, aliens come to Earth and all that stuff. And uh, it, it worked a lot better and made a lot more sense. Went into more detail about how he's on the ship and he gets the armor and escapes and stuff. And, uh, and also thought through the ship. I mean, like, like they're not going to build a bathroom for this guy. You know, there's like a hole on the floor. You know, I mean, they're not going to, you know, they, they, I thought through everything and, and made it all make sense. And uh, so I was doing that all day, every day, you know, writing this, writing that. And I'm like, I'm not supposed to be doing writing scripts. I wrote a, a script for Ninjak. I wrote a, a script for uh, XO. I wrote some other ones. I guess I think I wrote one for Eternal Warrior. I wrote one, oh, man. one for... Uh, this all uh, stuff that's never... I'm else. saying, oh, man, for people that are listening, because none of this stuff is going to see the light of day, unfortunately. Well, I can, I can put them on my... On my blog, I guess I don't know. I mean, what are you going to do? Sue me again? Oh, that's oh, that's the punchline. Here's the punchline. Here's the punchline. I'm 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 going to this office every day. I'm trying to write in a room with five people talking. Well, why, right? really quick, Jim? Why didn't they let you work from home? Be, be, I don't know. They wanted me to be there every day. So all right, fine. I'm there every day. Now, now I know a lot about publishing. I know a lot about the technical business of publishing and, and the financial business for that matter. But, but, uh, Walter Black, nice man, new book publishing, did not know any of this stuff. I'm sitting right there, right? They could ask me. They won't. They had some kind of ego thing. Another thing was that, uh, I was kept secret. Not only did not, they not make any announcement, I had to stay out of sight. And if somebody was coming in to visit, they'd send me to hide in the bathroom. Oh my you know? God. And, 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 and stuff like that. So that nobody could see me. And I said, why? And they said, well, we want to have a big surprise announcement when we, you know, launch. And that's what didn't make sense. Like it didn't make sense. Like no. they wouldn't let you work from home yet. You couldn't be in sight of people. What? Yeah. And then, and then the other thing is, is like, like, okay, I'm sitting there, and, and like I said, I know my stuff. And so they're trying to get figure out printing and, and get, maybe get it printed in Hong Kong or someplace like that. And the Hong Kong printer and other printers sent them, you know, uh, estimates and things. And so uh, Jason and, and Walter Black, and I don't, I don't think Dinesh was there, Jason and Walter Black are, are standing, literally, they're, they're about three feet from my back because his desk faced the other way and it was a small room. So they're standing there and they're talking about this, this estimate they got. And, um, Jason's like, uh, he said, well, yeah, but this, this says it's for perfected paper. He said, what's perfected paper? All the says, I don't know. So they're talking about what perfected paper might be. And I said, they asked me, ask me, I thought, come on, ask me, you know, and, uh, and so, so finally, I just couldn't stand it anymore. I said, it's the British term for super calendared. And they look at me with their big cow eyes and they say, what's super calendar? <laughs> and so I explained, have you ever seen a magazine where the paper's kind of shiny, but it's almost got a little orange peel to it. And so it's, it's heat pressed to be shiny. It's not coated. That's super calendar. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. I said, been here for a while 
That's really interesting. They didn't use you as a proper resource. They were paying you there and they wanted you to do the things that you didn't want to do. And you were contractually, you know, dis- well, you didn't I didn't have a do. contract. I didn't have a contract. We never had any paper signed. Oh, wow. So anyway, uh, so anyway, uh, it was all just sort of, oh, this is what we'll pay you. And that was it. So anyway, so, so one day I'm sitting there and into the room walks Bill Jemis. I'm like, who are you? He says, I'm Bill Jemis. I said, I thought so. I said, what are you doing here? And he's seeing me, of course. And he says, he said, relax. I know about you. I said, I said, okay. Um, what are you doing here? And he said, they hired me as a consultant. I said, oh, good. Okay. So anyway, anyway, so in, in, into the office comes Dinesh and, and Jason. Dinesh, I think, spent most of his time out on the coast. But he comes in. Then they come. They go, oh, Bill, good to see you. you know, let's, let's go to the conference room. So off they go to the conference room. And um, uh, he told me this later. He, he said, well, why isn't Jim coming? And I said, oh, well, he's, he's busy. You know. So anyway, um, the next week, he came in once a week. The next week he comes in. And he tells me, he said, they said you were busy. I said, I'm, do they want me to write stuff? I said, I, I didn't sign up here to be a writer. And I didn't have anything to edit. I didn't have any, you know, I mean, it was, uh, they were the editors in chief. And I was the, I was the writing writer. machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, so anyway, uh, uh, so when they come in, they say, go to the conference room. He just says, I want Jim to walk in. And this, well, but he said, no, I want Jim to come along. So anyway, they bring me along. So now I'm sitting in the conference room with them and they're asking him some really dumb questions, right? And every time they ask him a question, he'd look at me and say, what do you think, Jim? And I'd say what I thought. And then he would scream at the top of his lungs. So he's a foul mouth guy. He'd scream at the top of his lungs, obscenities, you know, just listen to him. Just do what he says. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and of course, I got invited to a couple more of those meetings, but, but, uh, they never listened to anything I said, and they never asked me any questions, you know? And then, and then, so it's getting, I'm getting frustrated, you know? So it's, it's going to be about seven months. I'm getting frustrated. So anyway, I was, uh, uh, one day I got called Mike Richardson and I said, Mike, I said, you don't need work for me because you know, I, I'm really tired of what I'm doing. I didn't tell him what I was doing. I said, I'm really tired of what I'm doing. And he said, well, funny you should ask, he said, because I, I have the right now to do news stories for the gold key characters. He said, do you want to do that again? I said, yeah, I'll do it. He said, it has to be true to the original, but all different. Don't want you doing the same thing. I said, okay. And uh, so so he, he says, okay. So I, 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 he said, can you fly out here? And I said, all right, I'm going to give him notice and, you know. And, uh, yeah, I'll be out there on next week or something. So I give them notice. I left a letter on my desk and the keys and the computer and everything. And I went out to, uh, um, actually first he asked me to come to San Diego so I could go on stage and he could make an announcement. And uh-huh. fine. So we did that. Then we went from there to Portland and spent some time in his office and everything. So, um, and that was about 2010, but at the end of with, yeah. with VIE, well, as they're called now, Valiant Entertainment, I mean, you had a falling out with them due to their extreme lack of professionalism. And of course, so many other things, but where, if you had stayed, where would you, where were you going to take that version of Valiant? 
had you stayed in charge? Well, I mean, I, I would have done the same thing I always do. I, I, first, I would, I would have fixed all the properties, made them all make sense and, and better. And and then, because uh, even Excel, like I said, I, found, I saw ways to make that better. And once I did that, if we were going to publish, I'd try to get the best writers I could. I'd go for Roger Stern and Mark Wade and... Uh, they definitely took it in a different direction and unfortunately they weren't aware of the fact that the true appeal for old school valiant fans was the original valiant characters the characterizations the stories so instead of creating a updated valiant universe similar to the marvel ultimate line they chose to create something completely different and do the opposite of everything. Whereas like EXO, instead of, you know, leading a corporation or of industries, he's now the leader of a country. You know, people were men, they were women. Grandmother had to be grandfather. Everything had to be the opposite of what it was before. And it killed the appeal for me as an old school value. Yeah. Man. It, it didn't attract me because this wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for an updated version of the pre unity valiant. What I got was this strange iteration with none of the original characterizations. Yeah. I never read any of that stuff, but, but the thing is like, okay, so uh, I, I give my resignation. I leave all the computer and everything. I mean, you know, it was, I did my, I did it the right way. And then I went out and I went to, you know, started working for Mike. He, he was great. He, he really was good to me. Uh, I couldn't get good artists for my books for some reason. The art was generally not very good. But uh, um, I think it was because he was spending a lot of money on the covers and a lot of money on me, and it didn't wasn't going to get you know top shelf guys. So so at any rate, uh, that wasn't him. I mean, his people. Um, but uh, so anyway, so I'm, I'm working for Mike, and I guess word you know it's announced at San Diego, and I think you know word spreads. So. The Valiant guys sue me, okay? They sue me for stealing their trade secrets and for violating my contract. Meanwhile, they knew number nothing. One, they knew nothing about yeah, it. Well, number one, what what trade secrets do you have, and exactly. where did I what where did I give them up? You know, and, <laughs> and number two, uh, what contract? I didn't have a contract. I didn't have a deal memo. I had nothing. You know, we had sort of a sort of a loose verbal agreement, you know, and and, uh, and you violated it, you know. And also, um, uh, when I left there, they owed me vacation and, and some pay. They stiffed me, you know. So so anyway, they, they sued me for for, you know, like I say, trade secrets and, and breach of this contract that didn't exist and stuff. Now, and then and for running off and working for Dark Horse. Now, if that was, if you really thought that I colluded with Dark Horse to, you know, run out on some contract, wouldn't you sue Dark Horse? No, they didn't sue Dark Horse. Yeah, because they so, actually had like a real legal team with resources to fight back. Yeah, and Mike has legal, legal lawsuit insurance. He, he is a limit on how much anything is ever going to cost him. But, but the thing is, like, uh, so anyway, and then I'm talking to Mike, and he comes to New York once in a while, and we to someplace and and I, I said what's what's going on here and he said he said well he said right after they sued you he said they came to me and they said that uh, uh, you know you were evil and terrible and uh, that if I made a movie deal with them because of course Mike 
in the movie business, that uh, they they'd stop suing you. I said no. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, and 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 I said I said I said well, Mike, you know, I said I. I yeah, they're trying to manipulate you into this. I said, who is the one you're talking to? He said, Fred Pierce. I said, ah, Fred Pierce. <laughs> Fred Pierce is a guy that when he worked it for me and they were, the, the Valiant books were taken off, somebody was counterfeiting them and selling them out of his trunk. What? And Fred Pierce, yeah, out of the Midwest. Fred Pierce was ex-military, uh, I'm sorry, ex-Israeli like, Secret Service. He had actually once been in the Israeli Secret Service, so he's all into spy stuff. Yeah, and so 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 he we we get tell of this, and Fred says, "I'll take care of this." And and so what he does is he gets the local police and the state police there, and they work out a sting. All right, and they they pull it off. This guy comes and he thinks he's selling comics to some dealer for some fabulous price, and it's a sting. They arrest him. They got him. Oh my god! And and so I thought, where are you? That's cool. So then, when I was trying to start Defiant, um, and and there there was you know obviously contention between us. Uh, I Forbes magazine did an article it was not too flattering to them and, and stuff, and uh, uh, and of course they're worried about me maybe getting into business and stuff, and also they're looking for any way to get their hooks into me, right? Uh, these Melanie and Masarski and sure. their people. Okay, so 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 anyway, I get this call from this guy. His name's Ed Barrow, and he represents this investment group. And, and uh, uh, he's heard about me and would like to talk with me. I said, all right, sure. You know, so so we met at this hotel uh, somewhere in Midtown. I can't remember which one. Um, eat there, and uh, so he's asked me questions about the business, and he explained that that uh, he can't disclose it yet but that he represents a very, among others, a very large Japanese company would like to make inroads into American comic book publishing, and they think I'm the guy to do it. I said, well, that's nice. And he said, well, do you have a business plan? I said, uh, yes. And it was in my briefcase. You know, and it's nothing that says I can't work on a business plan. See, I wasn't allowed to work for anyone doing anything till my Valiant contract expired. They got rid of me in June, I think end of June. Uh-huh. And my contract went. My contract went to October, so I'm still getting paid. Now, if I violated my fiduciary responsibilities there, they could. There was another way to attack me to get the stock and so because they were trying to get my stock. Back. Right, right, right. Um, they, they, which they eventually did through an arbitration, which was another whole nightmare. But, but at any rate, uh, and uh, uh, totally bogus and evil. Um, uh, for forged documents, stuff. Like oh that. my and, god. Oh, and they did take me to court with forged documents. Once they lost that case, cost they were trying. They were suing me for fifty thousand dollars. They spent three hundred and fifty thousand dollars suing me to get fifty thousand dollars, and I I spent seventy thousand dollars defending my fifty thousand oh dollars. Why? Because it wasn't about that. They were Principal. trying to get a, they were trying to get a, a, a judge to agree that Valiant was in default and all of my stock should be theirs because they were thinking they were going to sell it for a quarter billion dollars. So anyway, so back to back to Dark Horse and 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 uh, Valiant Entertainment. So uh, so they're suing me, and and they were I'm talking to Mike, and I said I, I said why aren't they suing you? He said because they want me to do a movie deal, and they don't want to clear the deal, right? So I said what are you going to do? He says I don't like being manipulated. 
And uh, uh, so anyway, he strung him along for a while just to find out as much as he could and and then refused to do a movie deal with him. Uh, meanwhile, now I'm into defending myself to the tune of $11,000 plus the, the thousands that they owed me, which they just didn't pay me. Ah. And um, uh, so so anyway, um, uh, they, they, they withdrew the suit without prejudice. In other words, they could always bring it back. And, uh, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'd like to see you in court explain about the contract that I didn't have. Um, but at any rate, uh, so, I mean, that was the one evil thing they did, but that was Fred. Fred did that because he was thinking, Hey, we could sue Jim and use that to lever Mike, you know, in a, uh, trying to get a movie deal. That was what that was all about. That must've hurt that a little bit because you'd had worked with Fred Pierce and then here he was coming to stab you in the back. And yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, he really worked for triumph capital. You know, and, and he was their their secret agent in Valiant keeping track of me. He was a pretty good guy when he was there. He he like I said, he helped me keep everybody employed. He uh uh he you know, did the sting thing to get the the counterfeiters. He he he, he didn't just sit back and watch. I mean he, he actually worked for a living. He he started handling the printing uh production part of it. And you know, I thought he was a pretty good guy. And then, and then, when the Ed Barrow thing, I found out that this was all bogus. I mean, basically, I was just you know, thinking about all the stuff he said, and I'm thinking this guy is trying to get me to say things like, I mean, he asks questions like, "What, what artists from uh, Valiant do you think you could get to come with you?" You know, huh. I'm like, well, you know, I, you know. So, so, so they're trying to hang me up on some kind of, you know, trade secrets, uh, uh, you know, uh, non-compete stuff or and fiduciary responsibility. They're just trying to get at me, you know, and, and because the stock was still kind of a question then. Um, and, and so, uh, so you know, I'm thinking about some of the things he's asking me. And I didn't say anything wrong because, I mean, if I was to say, I'm going to get Don Perlin, I mean, you know. So anyway, the next time we had another meeting, and um, so I go to this hotel, but I went way early, okay? And so I'm sitting there at this, on this little sitting area facing the door. And so in comes Ed Barrow, and he walks in for a little bit, and he sees me. And he holds one finger up, like one minute, you know? And he goes around the corner to the, where the men's room is. In like three seconds, he's back. He went to turn on his tape recorder. Ah, I mean, that's a guess, but it's a, it's a damn good guess. So that time he really got specific with all these questions about, you know, which artists are you going to steal from Valiant and, you know, uh, what, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, how is your business plan, you know, based on theirs, which I wrote, um, you know, and I'm like, no, I'd never do that. That would be a violation of my fiduciary responsibility. <laughs> you know, I mean, basically, I gave the, the 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 answer that the judge would want. You know, right? And 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 so he gets really frustrated, and and he finally leaves. Uh, yeah, take that, Pierce. But uh, uh, all right. So so anyway, I never did get the money from them, and they but they sent me Christmas cards. So I guess that's right. So they still they still send you Christmas cards, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, uh, you know, with Valiant Entertainment, their karma did come back and bite them in the ass because in 2018, Dinesh 
Jason Guattari sold his stake and Dinesh got bought out and the company was then owned by DMG. And the new owners are based in China. This is really, it's kind of controversial. There's a lot of controversy. There's a step in between there. There's a step in between there. There's a, there was an ex Marvel exec whose name escapes me right now. Uh, Odd name. Maybe starts with a U. Um, Anyway, it was an ex-Marvel exec who, when the, when the Dinesh and uh, Jason's relatives uh, got tired of writing big checks to keep them afloat, you know, since they'd already spent it, the, that's where they got the money, the $2 million, they said, uh-huh. to buy the characters. And so, you know, they're not making any money and they're not doing anything. And so I think uh, that when they, uh, you know, got in, started getting in financial trouble, then this guy, I think it was a Peter something or other or something. I don't know. I anyway, he comes in. Yeah, he comes in. He's a Marvel guy, and he brought in new money. He's a real executive, and he knew what he was doing. And that's when uh, that's when they got rid of Jason and Dinesh. And he really kind of turned the joint around. He, he actually they started publishing books, which I have seen, and they looked professional. People have told me they're good. I don't know. Um, and, uh, you know, he started getting... Uh, uh, he cleared up all of... Another thing is, when they bought those characters... In in the bankruptcy uh, uh, of a claim, uh, all of the paperwork had been lost. And what, just like uh, Harvey, they didn't have a single scrap of paper to say they owned anything. And so they had to, uh, they, were, they were going person by person uh, to like David Lapham and even the colorist, uh, Maria Macari and stuff like that, trying to get them to sign documents that said that they owned them. They don't want pay them anything or share anything with them. They just wanted to kind of con them into doing it. And Maria, it was not, you know, she's not very business savvy. So she signed it. David Lavin wouldn't do it. He said, no, I'm not signing anything. <laughs> Smart know, guy. Why? why would I do that? Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, so I mean, like they, they, had a, they had a bunch of problems. This new guy, this, he was a real executive. He solved the problems. And then he was the one who, who I think got the Chinese uh, buyers. Yeah, it's really interesting. Now, how does that make you feel that something you created in 1990, you know, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, is now owned by a company, a percentage of which is owned by the Chinese Communist Party? Because all businesses that are based in China do have to give a percentage up to the government. Is that strange for you? That's got to be really surreal. Yeah, I, I I'd like to say, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think about it a lot. I just, you know, <laughs> I just, I'm making a living. That's, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, get along. Yeah. It's just really interesting. That's just, you know, I try to think about it from a person that's just creating these characters and especially the Valiant characters, which you created from scratch and then fast forward to the year 2021 and yeah. they're owned by this random company. They have an editor in chief if you can call her that, that's 24 years old. Their comics are that they're releasing now. They're releasing like one, maybe two a month. And they're some of the worst comics that have ever been released, in my opinion. They're absolutely atrociously bad. And it's, it's really disappointing. But all the people that you had problems with at Valiant and v, uh, Valiant Entertainment are gone. So if they offered you a chance to come work for them again, with this new Valiant, the DMG Valiant, would you be interested in working for them? Uh, I don't know. Probably not. I mean, I, I've been down uh, in and out and around all that stuff. Uh, see, here's the thing. I mean, I, I remember when I told my mother that, you know, this evil 
people had uh, stolen Valiant. And my whole family, they, they, they helped me when they could. My sister actually colored for us a little bit for free. Oh, wow. Um, and also she, she did a lot of uh, uh, kind of secretarial stuff. Not a lot, but I mean, she, she, there, there was mailings we had to do and stuff like that. Um, when we were about to do Unity, I knew how much was at stake with Unity. And uh, uh, so I, uh, um, I, I, we kept every single letter we got. We got a lot of letters. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I, I pulled, or I had pulled, uh, for me a thousand letters, a thousand discrete, uh, individuals. Right? Okay. And I drafted a short, simple letter. And it was, it was, uh, uh, words to the effect that, uh, you've written to us before and we, uh, value your opinion. And we're coming out with this this new project, and it's the most important thing you've ever done. Um, really like to hear, you know, what you think of it, right? So I, I, I had a thousand of these letters made. Okay. So what I did was I got a big bunch of Valiant stationery, and I sent it to my mother in Pittsburgh, and all of these addresses, right? And she hand wrote a thousand letters. Oh my God. Your own mother did that for you. Yeah, and she signed it, uh, uh, you know, Eleanor, and said, send response to Department E. E. <laughs> e for Eleanor. Is she still yeah. in this dimension? Is she still alive? She's she, she's in home now. She doesn't have much of a memory. But, um, okay. but anyway, so she writes, she writes me a thousand and mails a thousand letters to all these people. All right. We got the greatest response in the history of direct mail. We had out of the thousand letters, we had something like uh, I might have might be off by ten here. Something like nine hundred and sixty-six responses wow. out of a thousand letters. You know, which means that those thousand people all went out and bought all eighteen issues of Unity. Oh like yeah, sixteen, two, two or three, and uh, and read it and gave their opinion, and most of them liked it. Almost all. Well, I think it was the greatest crossover ever in comics because, like I said, of how it was written in the different perspectives. But but just to, it, using every dirty trick I could think, not dirty, every honest dirty trick I could think of, <laughs> you know, to try to try to promote this was so much dependent on it, so much dependent on it. Because I thought if, if this could be the thing that brings in the money, that enables me to make money, to buy these big people out, the only trouble is we are too successful. And there's no way I'm going to raise a quarter billion dollars to compete against Paramount, right. you know? <laughs> so, so, so anyway, the fact is we were so successful, we were, you know, hoist our own guitar there. So, well, it seemed to come at right um, at the time in the comic industry where, um, people were really focused on artwork and the mega artists of the time. And that's when image comics started right at that same time. And yet here was valiant while they had incredibly professional artists, they seemed to have the writing. They had the writing and the storytelling down. So you had these two kind of dynamic companies. One was art-based and one was writing-based, it seemed like, back then anyway. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we, like I said, all we had to fight was the story. We're using kids right out of the Hubert school. We had uh, uh, the Don Perlin hated Marvel after I left, and he just, we spoke to lunch and he said, you got to get me out of here. you got to get me out of here. I said, I hate this place. It's not, it's not fun anymore. Right. And uh, I said, Don, what are you, 60-something? You know, you got benefits. You got, 
retirement, you got, you know, all this stuff, and you want to leave there and work for a fragile startup start that may not make it? I said, oh, yeah, I'm out of mind. He said, I don't care. I want out of there. And I said, all right, because we could use him. Yeah, I must have and, been uh, abysmal so, at Marvel at that time for him to do that. Yeah, yeah. So so he he, he gave up, uh, you know, I mean, and we were, I knew him well. I mean, we, we were friends. So, uh, um, at any rate, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he came to work. That was a godsend. Uh, uh, Layton came because no one else wanted him. Right. And he, you know, he worked with me at Marvel and, you know, we were, we were sort of friendly. And, uh, and then Barry Wintersmith, same deal. He burned his bridges at DC, burned his bridges at Marvel. He knew me, he knew Layton. And when I called him up, um, you know, he came down and talked about it and decided he could work for us, you know, I mean, and he's such and, a remarkable um, artist. You know, it's really I know. crazy. He really is. He's a great, great storyteller. He's a pain oh in the ass. I can't believe. But uh, at any rate. So uh, what are you doing he, now in the comic book world? Are you still working on comics well, at all? Um, yeah, I, I do occasional uh, sort of uh, things like Jesus Taurus Rex and, and, and the things that nobody sees. And, and, uh, um, like I designed a character for this one company and I, I, uh, oh, I don't know. I did, you know, little jobs like that. And, uh, but in the last, uh, couple of years, um, mostly what I've been doing is like, I keep getting, I, I didn't go to conventions for years because I thought, why am I going to go to a convention? You know I mean? I don't sound like I have stuff to promote or running a company or anything. And then finally, Marvel's doing that anniversary of Secret Wars and, uh, this agent, talked me into going to these conventions with Mike Zeck and John Beatty. He said, it'll be the reunion tour, you know, you'll right. have fun and make money. And I, I didn't want to do it. And uh, <laughs> uh, he, he convinced me, he, he said, he said, it'll be better for Mike and John. If you're there, you'll get more business, you know? And I said, all right, you know, okay. So I went to a couple of these and it was fun. I hadn't seen Mike and John for years and, and, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of fun you know, doing it and they paid me. And, um, uh, the other guys charge for autographs and sketches and stuff. I don't, I don't do sketches or I didn't then I had recently, but, I, uh, uh, I, I said, I'm going to charge sign my name. And, uh, yeah, it didn't so, used uh, to be that way at comic book conventions. It's only a recent thing that people start charging for signatures. Yeah. And, and the thing is, all right, like if, if, if I'm, if a dealer is, paying or is selling the book and he's basically selling my signature, you know, to get more money on the book. Okay. Dealer can pay me. That's fine. You know? Um, so I've had some dealer signing stuff in the last few years and I, I, I did a lot of conventions. It was getting to be too many. I mean, uh, this, my agent is Renee Wittersteader and she, she's great, you know, except that, you know, I sometimes find myself, well, not during the pandemic so much, but, but I uh, found myself uh, going, going to more can- conventions than, than I really needed to. And uh, so that was a big part of my income. And then last year, because th- there were no conventions or very few, um, a couple of miracles happened. I, I got uh, a couple really good uh, signing gigs for de- dealers and, uh, uh, and then also, um, I got a chance to uh, write a screen treatment and uh, they paid me. Usually they don't pay for treatments. That's, that's usually you do that on spec. I, I, I don't work on spec. So I, anyway, so I got to write it. Then that paid well. And, uh, 
Are you still getting royalties from your previous work at Marvel at all or DC? I get I get reprint payments, the small reprint payments. So that's last year I uh, I got a couple small checks, not enough for them to even send me a ten ninety nine. So oh wow, yeah. So I mean, I get some once in a while. Whenever they reprint Secret Wars, I get a check. Uh, and also some of the other Avengers and things like that. Well, how, I mean, this kind of segues into the next question. How do you feel about the escalating value of original comic book art? Because it's the last five years, it's like tripled, quadrupled the value of original comic book art. For instance, uh, the original cover for Magnus robot fighter, number five of, uh, pre unity Valiant just sold for $10,000. Uh, some of the, Some of the pre-Unity pages usually go for around 4000 I'm hoping that you have a substantial stack somewhere of original comic book art that you've collected over the years because you deserve it. No, I, I have a few pages that people gave to me. I've got a Michael Golden gave me this splash page with the first issue of the NOM, which I have printed on my wall. Uh, I got a couple of pages. Don Perlin gave me. Uh, no, I don't have. I don't have any any art. I, I uh, um, I'll tell you what though. You're right. The the value of the stuff is just skyrocketed. I was uh, one of these dealers. Uh, uh, I like I say, don't do sketches usually. Sure, um, sure. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, those comic books have the blank covers, and then yeah, the sketch covers. On. Yeah, yeah. So. So uh, this dealer, really smart retailer, uh, he he brought us to uh, Vegas uh, and actually LA at two stores, um, Mike, John, and me. And um, he kept bugging me. Like, Why don't you do sketches? Why don't you do sketches? I can't. You know, I, don't, I don't draw that well. I'm going to sit next to Mike Zach and I'm going to draw. Forget it. You know, and uh, so, 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 so he says, he says, well, why don't you just, you know, do it? He says, why don't you, here, here's, here's a blank cover book, try something on. I said, I said, how about I make something really little, you know, so I don't have to know where every muscle is, you know? And he said, that's fine. So I did kind of little silly drawings of Batman and, you know, Superman and I don't know what else. He said, it's great. I said, no, we're okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he's 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 like selling my drawings, and all of a sudden I'm doing all these little drawings, and I'm like, I, I, I'm not really good at this, guys. And, uh, and he said, doesn't matter, it's you. I said, well, okay, yeah, fine. So so then, uh, then he comes to us with a blank book, and they were the the the, the book was Secret Wars, right? Okay, I think yeah, I think no, no, Spider Man. Might have been anyway, he wanted each of us, all the Mike, John, and me, to draw just a head and like shoulders of this Spider-Man in the black suit, right? Okay. So Mike, he he didn't lay it out. What he did was he said, "I'll draw here, you draw here, and you draw here," and sort of gave me a general idea of what what he was going to do. I said. I tell you what, you know, um, you go first <laughs> and then I'll, you know, look at what you did and maybe get a clue. So, so, so he did. And, um, and I, I said, no, I'll probably do this, you know? Okay. So it's just black and it's all black, you know, this is the costume. 
So I, I did uh, a head, and, and the way this was, this was a set of four, and each one just looked like a different thing. One was just heads, one was something else. Anyway, so, and then they were numbered, one through four, okay? And um, uh, so, and all three was in a sign at me. So the dealer offers these for $1,000 a book. Whoa! It's $4,000. And he sold them in an hour. Oh, my God! Was that, did that just flabbergast yeah. you? Was that just like, Oh I just, my God. I couldn't believe it. So I ended up being a good gig. I mean, like I got some money for that and then, you know, and, and Mike and John were very happy. Yeah. I, I told the guy, I said, I said, look, I said, you want, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what your deal is with these guys. I said, but whatever you pay them, pay me like a third, you know, cause sure. that's, you know, they're artists, you know, he said, you know, half and that's my final or two thirds. And that's my final offer. And I said, I said, all right, fine. So anyway, I mean, you know, that kept me alive, and the, the screen treatment thing kept kept me alive, and and uh, the CGC signing that you know was good, and uh, so I, I made it through the year. This year we've got a couple of shows so far, and, but I've got I got plenty of writing work to do. I, I've been writing. Uh, Eric Stevens wants me to write a how-to book. Uh, you don't, nobody knows that, but they can know it. It's okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, so, so anyway, so I've been puttering around with that, and I got a couple other. Well, have you ever things. thought think, of uh, doing creator-owned work, uh, or because Warriors of Plasm still is so popular in comic circles, people still talk about Warriors of Plasm and Dark Dominion. Have you ever thought about maybe? I know this sounds kind of silly, but licensing those characters so you can do them again, like in a smaller scale. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, that, it seems like a, a lot of work, you know, raising money or kickstartering or something. I, I don't, I, 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 I have work in front of me. I've got three or four projects because I've had uh, several different publishers actually, uh, you know, basically say, you know, you got a character or anything you want, you know, work or not work for our uh, creator. On. I said, okay. So I, I could, there's stuff I can be doing. Right. And, um, and meanwhile, uh, I, I've been doing some work that doesn't pay. I've been working on, uh, uh, the company that pays me. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, my partner owns illustrated media. Yeah. I was going to ask uh, you about that. And is that, uh, and, is that JJ Jackson that you're partnered with there? No, no. It, it, the guy's name is uh, Joseph Loria. Oh, okay. He's, great guy he's a lawyer so is his wife They're, she's one of the biggest litigators in the country and um and so uh, uh you know he, he he came to me a long time ago um i don't know where he got my name uh but his brother his brother was a navy seal and he always liked comics so he retired as a navy seal so he's an older guy okay? uh-huh. retired and then he wanted to do uh, a comic book about being a Navy SEAL. And so uh, uh, his brother, my partner, Joe, like finance that. And sort of got his feet wet in the comic book business. This book's called Spec War, and it's really not that. It's pretty good. I mean, like for a guy whose training was Navy SEAL, he seems to know comics pretty well. So, uh, um, so anyway, I kind of got his interest. And there was a time uh, many years ago where... Um, the State Department uh, hired this lady, I think her name was Charlotte Beer or Beer 
an advertising type person, advertising marketing person. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to get uh, filmmakers and uh, book publishers and people to do sort of, let's call it Voice of America stuff, you know, like have a more positive message uh-huh. about America and things like that. And the, the, the film industry turned their back. <laughs> they said, Screw you. you know? And they couldn't get any cooperation from anybody. So, so my, you know, just, just to do some stuff that maybe would only be distributed overseas, you know, things like that. Nope. And uh, that they would pay for it, by the way. And, uh, and so my partner, he, he, uh, sent a letter, uh, I think he actually sent it to, uh, um, Charlotte Beer and, uh, he got a call from the White House. Um, I guess this is when Bush was president yeah, from Carl Rove. And, uh, he said that they, he, the someone for the state department, this, the person one step down from Charlotte was this lady named Peggy England and that she wanted to meet with Joe in New York to discuss this because they were fascinated by the idea. And so he, he, his brother, that stuff wasn't right. You cannot show that to anybody. Um, and he, so he commissioned, uh, I think Armin Gill and uh, who wrote it, somebody wrote, maybe his brother wrote it, uh, to do a, like a, a, like the beginning of a comic book, first so, so many pages, right? Okay. And um, uh, and he was going to go show these to Peggy England. This is what they have in mind. And and they started getting cold feet about going, and they're not knowing a whole lot about the comic book. And I think he he got in touch with me somehow. I don't remember how. And he said, yes, if I'd meet with him, and I said, sure, okay. And he told me, and he said, just like you to come with me to this meeting. And that's really all the farther we got that first time. So, okay, we're going to go to the meeting. And I meet him somewhere in the city. And and he says, he says, look, this is what I'm going to show her. And he shows me these pages, I think drawn by Arm, Arm, Armand Gill. And uh, so I'm looking at these. And like, I said, don't take these out of your briefcase. I said, don't let anybody see these. I said, this is this, it's awful. You know, I mean, the art's okay, you know, but it was like, uh, imagine the dumbest person on earth trying to write a comic book to convince, you know, Muslim terrorists not to blow us up. Oh my God. You know, it's just, it was, it was just bizarre. It was, it was, uh, and, and he, he wanted to call the company, um, reflections of America. So it's like a character who's, supposedly Muslim and he's telling everybody, Oh no, it's really great. You know, I said, this is, this is bad. Don't, don't leave this. In the and so, so we go to this meeting and this Peggy England really interested in, in the concept about, and she says, she, she says, we've an enormous amount of money. She said, she said, we'll put you in business. You know, you know, you'll create it. You'll publish it. We'll take care of the distribution overseas. You know, we'll take care of marketing there, you know. And um, and I said, well, that sounds amazing, you know. And and she says, she says what, what, so what do you have in mind, you know? And and Joe says, well, here, here's something. And he pulls the thing out of his briefcase. And he's pulling it out and putting it on the table, I said to Peggy England, I said, excuse me, Peggy, I want you to know I had nothing at all to do with this and I don't like it. And he looks at Joe, looks at me like, stabbing him in the heart, you know? And so he passes it over to her and she's flipping through the pages. 
pushes it back to me and says, that would sink your ship. <laughs> that would sink your ship. And she turns to me, what, what do you have in mind? And I said, I said, create all new characters. And I said, different, very different. I said, uh, you know, uh, every one of them is features Arab Muslim characters. That's stars. I said, maybe, maybe one very cartoony for the young kids. Maybe one that's, you know, sort of like Star Trek in the sense that it's on a spaceship, and but it's a, the Arabs run the spaceship. Oh <laughs> or, you, know, you know, I mean, it's it's all it's all Muslim characters, right? Right, right, right. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm winging this off the top of my head. And I said, I said, and and, and it, I said, entertainment first, just brilliant entertainment. I said, and then then good art. And I said, you know, and then very subtly between the lines, you might lay some uh, uh, kind of like subtle hints, thinking, and... hints of hints of hints of tolerance and stuff like that, you know. Right. And and, and so she said, I like that. And she said, write it down. So uh, I did, and I had a number of conversations with the Middle East expert at the State Department. I can't remember the guy's name right now, but he I call him or he call me, and when we go over. Uh, he never looked at anything I did. What he did was he 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 would coach me about culture and what they liked and what they saw. I have a friend who was Egyptian, so I sent his family in Egypt shopping, and they brought me, sent me two shopping bags full of you know Arab and Muslim kids publications. Oh, interesting. Even videotapes and stuff. Yeah. So I was like loaded for bear, and I came up with five properties, and they were all pretty good. And uh, um, we were ready to have the, you know, we had sort of a, a struck the skeleton of a business plan, uh, ready to have a meeting. And then the Gulf War breaks out and then nobody answers the phone anymore. Wow. I told you, I lead the league. I lead the league and near misses, man. Ah, uh, so what happened? Why weren't they answering the, like, why weren't they? Because they were all busy dealing with the war. They, 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 were, they were all busy, you know, in other oh stuff. Oh my gosh. And then, and then, because she wasn't getting any traction anywhere, Charlotte Beer quits, and they closed that program, and that was the end of that. Oh, but, uh, man, yeah, it just so, seems like you've been yeah. so close so many times around. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, I lead the league in Pyrrhic victories and no misses. <laughs> but but, you, uh, but people still recognize you as a legend, as a person that contributed your entire life to the comic book field, and so much good came out of the work that you've done. P.S. The thing is, uh, the, the Joe realized that I was right, and and we have tremendous respect for each other, and, and we kind of stayed together and worked on projects ever since. He helped me with Dark Horse, for instance, and uh, and and also uh, did some work for somebody else that he he was uh, involved with, and and you know, and it, it gets me these some mostly little jobs, and um, you know. So anyway, I. Uh, uh, you know, I, I do that with Joe. I've been doing that kind of stuff, and and recently working on the website, which is not you know paying gig, but it's it's work that has to be done. And uh, and I've got a couple projects lined up, and, and I've got Social Security. Oh, good. Okay. You know, yeah, you are the same age as my dad, so it's uh, good to know that you're taken care of as you deserve to be for all the service yeah, that you've done. But no, well, then there there are. There are no royalties. It's just little reprint payments. There's no, uh, I mean, all the work I did for all those companies, I was an employee when I did it. That's the <sighs> definition of work for hire. 
that's the definition of work for hire. So, I mean, so, but I, now, since I don't work for Marvel, DC, or any of those people, um, you know, and I'm not doing a licensed book like I was at Dark Horse, or else I would have owned a piece of it. Um, the fact is that, you know, I mean, if I was going to do something, I'm going to own it. Right. You know? At this point, and, yeah. And, yeah, we'll see. Because then it's nice that I'm not up against the wall, you know, that, that I, I, I can pick and choose a little. Yeah, that is pretty amazing because, you know, you have a hardcore fan base. There are hundreds of thousands of people that think, I mean, around the world that think you're an incredibly exceptional writer. And like I said, you had a massive influence on my personal development as, as a young kid reading dark dominion, reading solar and trying to wrap my head around the heady concepts. It really helped me evolve, which is such a cool thing. And you helped so many people understand these things around the world. It's such a huge contributions you made. Thank you. I, I, you know, I learned from the greatest guys out there are. I, I paid attention to every word they said. I, yeah, it's hard not to, but Jim, we're, this is the longest podcast that we've ever had. I'm so honored that we had this time together. I want to talk to you a little bit more now that we've gone through your incredibly vast professional career. Um, <laughs> if you still have time, um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the creative process, but if not, we can sure. re- reschedule it. But yeah, let's uh, go into that a little bit then. So, okay, okay, you're a spiritual guy, you're a metaphysical guy, you're super intelligent, you understand these concepts of manifestation and how to pull something from nothing, make something from nothing. When you're dipping in, when you're writing, does it feel like you're in another world? When you were writing Marvel comics, did it seem like you were in the Marvel universe or the Valiant comics? Were you in that universe channeling the information and then writing it out? Did it feel that way for you? Um, well, first of all, Marvel and DC, uh, you know, this, I was, I inherited what they did, their style. And, 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 you know, I mean, I inherited the Marvel universe and, and, and you know, I, I observed, I respected my elders and, and, and tried to do it the Marvel way or the DC way. Now that said, I, I, I really also, it felt like you know, no. Stan had it right. You've got to, you have to feel it. You have to, uh, you know, make these characters uh, real. I mean, my, my I just think like you know, if I can make somebody understand, you know, how this feels, you know, like Stan did for me so many times. Um, Stan Jack to you, blah blah blah. Uh, but but you know, I mean, uh, so I was I always try to knock it up a notch, you know, and and, and try to do a better. Like at DC, I was, you know, I was kind of stuck with a lot of stuff from, you know, Legion of Superheroes, stuff like that. But I made the best. Of it. I, I tried to make the characters as real as I could. I, I, I borrowed my high school friend's personalities. Right. <laughs> you know, because, you know, and I thought I was, I thought I was doing something wrong, and then I found out that all writers do that. But did it feel um, like the characters but, were real for you? Like when you were writing it, did they, well, we feel like you were real people and you were scripting what was going on inside their mind? I think I think if you do it right, I think if you do it right, you you really you you role play it. You know, you you, you don't have to actually dance around the living room with a yardstick or something. But but you 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 have to you know make it make sense. You have to you have to make it. Um, yeah, that person would do that. The way Mark Twain says it is that uh, is that you should you should uh, draw your characters so well that. 
the reader would will will know what they would do in a quote given emergency. Uh. Um, you know, and and so and he, he's right. He, he smart Twain, but but uh, you know, I mean, he, he, that 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 is that is exactly what you do. You have to, you know, because um, I mean, I read a lot of these books, and uh, I did some reviews on my blog, and you know, I just like didn't make any sense at all. And you know, a person does this one day and that the next. Uh, you know, they have this power one day, they don't the next day, and or a different power or something. You know, it's like. Um, I was reading, reading Wonder Woman, and then there's uh, a, a scene like uh, uh, where um, the god Hermes uh, uh, is, is injured. He gets shot with an arrow. Don't know if it's a mystic arrow or something like that. I don't know. Okay. But you know, he survives it. Pulls the arrow, out and he's okay. He's all bloody, and you know, he hurts, but he's not. He's not dead. Um, there's uh, uh, you know a couple things like that, and 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 yet it's like it's like the gods are invulnerable when the writer wanted them to be, and yet somebody gets stabbed with a broken glass who's a god and it cuts her hand. Yeah, you know, there's no well make up there. your mind. You know? right. <laughs> and 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 uh, you know the, the Amazons are you know, kind of attacked by this god Eris strife, and um, she doesn't actually do anything. She makes them kill each other. And, and, you know, I mean, so they, they come, Wonder Woman brings them out of this trance and they find all their, their mothers and sisters lying dead on the ground in front of them. And, uh, the, nobody takes a shot at Eris or anything like that. That's, you know, uh, she's a god. Can, what, what can we do? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and so, and so, they, so, so she's kind of hanging out with them. She's like, you know, uh, just hanging out with Wonder Woman and stuff. My Wonder Woman kicks her ass. You know, if if you can cut her hand with a broken glass, don't tell me she can't be hurt because she's a god. That wasn't a mystic broken glass. It was a restaurant mo- mo- broken glass. So, so I mean, you know, and was the arrow mystic? I don't know. But but the point is, you're not even paying attention to your own logic here. You know, and and this character Wonder Woman, she's. You know, I mean, Carol Strickland said that's not a Wonder Woman. That's even not even. It's like a, like a, a, the Xena Warrior Princess, you know, uh, uh, except not as good. <laughs> you know, makes no sense. Well, I've been thinking, Jim, that I'm trying to wrap my head around because when I look at the older comics of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, they have a different feel. They feel like prints, like like an art prints. They feel like true art. And then something happened in the mid-90s into the 2000s where comics seemed to lose their special feel. And I tried to wrap my head around it to try to really think of what that could be and why that is. And the reason that I personally came down to was the computer coloring. The computer coloring changed the way my brain processed comics. And it it wasn't as appealing. And nowadays, comic book art looks like animation cells on each panel, they don't, it doesn't even really look like a comic book anymore. Do you think that that's part of the reason it's had a huge downturn? Well, I think, I think it is to some extent. I mean, I think that, you know, it's nice that you can do all these tricks with a computer. It's nice that you can, uh, you, you, you know, you, you can paint and, and, and stuff. But, but I think that a lot of these colorists, especially, um, they don't do the trick because it's good or it helps the story or it works. They do it because they can, 
and 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 so you get you know stuff that's and, and then also I mean nobody taught these people anything apparently because I mean I learned to color when I when I'm more wise than was teaching me everything I I, I got sat down with Tajana Wood and, and told how to color and you know and then all this stuff that that's the knowledge of the ancients has just been lost and it's it it, it applies to today even with the computer I don't care what the tool is the principles are the same for instance. Um, like in the old days when you had uh, about 56 usable colors and, you know, the lousy paper and, and all that. All right, fine. They, they, they really went simple. The principles are the same, but they went simple. Did you notice ever that almost all heroes are red, blue, and yellow and almost all villains are green and purple? Right. That's because you had a limited color spectrum back then. Well, and also they wanted the heroes to be the primaries, villains uh. to be orange, Orange, purple, you know, green, and and in those days, the civilian characters were Prussian blue, uh, you know, tertiary colors, and 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 uh, you know, browns and, and, and things like that. Okay, so you had that. The other thing is the primary colors pop. You you see them clearly, and the characters and even the villains to some extent pop. And um, and so what happens is those characters are usually close to the camera. So you have instant depth, pastel background, red superhero. You know, uh, here's the villain in the middle ground, and he's he's got a green and orange. And you know, and so they had it simplified, dumbed down. But but that was because of the technology. That was because the paper sucked, and 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 you only had 56 colors. You had uh, three levels of three colors plus one level of black. Right. And uh, uh, and then several of them, you, this ink saturation was too much. You, you couldn't use solid red, solid blue, solid yellow, or just bleed through the paper. So, uh, um, I mean, on top of each other, that's what I'm saying. Right. So anyway, you know, all right, so, so a lot of these guys never learned to think that way. They never learned, hey, depth is the key to clarity. Make depth. Don't just sit down and start coloring and say, well, that... That that's a, a shoe, so I'm going to color it brown, and that's a uh, you know a, a, a whatever a parking meter, so I'm going to color it gray, and, and you color it piece by piece, and then you come up with a, a jumble. You know what these do is you should do is you sit down and you analyze the picture, organize it. Say how am I going to make that look close and that look far? How am I going to make the middle ground look like it's in the middle? And and so I used to, I actually took colors to the Metropolitan Museum and showed them the Dutch masters. Oh wow! Say, there's there's uh, ten miles of depth in this picture. It's it, the, the way you do it is you create planes. You separate the planes. There's here's the dark stuff in the foreground. Here's the here's the lit stuff in the middle ground. Here's some more dark stuff. Here's, here's uh, it's not quite as dark. Here's some light stuff, and then there's the mountains in the distance, and they almost fade into the sky. Yeah, it seems like that has been lost. A lot of the new yeah, artists, absolutely right. I used to show them, and I used to take, I used to, same with inkers, I tell them, think depth. It's not a Rorschach test. I don't care about it. Whoever told you to spot blacks, I'm going to kill them with my shoe. <laughs> but, because it's spotting blacks. That's nonsense. What's that mean? It means nothing. It means Rorschach test. It was, it was what it means. So, so I, would, I would tell them, I mean, I said to also, I'd give people Dinotopia. Colors. Dinotopia. Wow. Look at Dinotopia. Okay? Every picture, the guy creates depth. He's a painter. You're a colorist. You've got a computer now. You can color like he does if you want, but make depth. I told Dan Green, great talent, tremendous talent. He was thinking the X-Men. Excellent artist. I mean, total control of the tools, 
uh, you know, understood technique and all this stuff like that. And the stuff was flat as hell. It was just no depth because he was spotting blacks because he'd always been told to do that. And he, I guess he thought that was some peculiarity of the comic business. And every time I try to explain depth to him, he'd blink his big cow eyes at me and think, oh, here's another idiot editor telling me, you know, stuff that doesn't make sense. So finally, one day, he comes in with some paintings he did, show us his paintings. And look at these paintings, miles of depth, right? Just like the Dutch Masters, same logic, separate planes, you know? And uh, progressions of values, other tools too, Con- progressions of contrast, progressions uh, of uh, uh, intensity, color, you know? I mean, you, you, there's all kinds of ways, use them all, you know? So I'm looking at his paintings, and these things have miles of depth. And I said, Dan, I said, see what you did in this painting? See the depth? He said, yeah. I said, do that with your ink. He said, oh, is that what you mean? <laughs> I that's said, yeah, that's what I mean. And he said, oh, okay. And so he did, just like that. <laughs> Overnight, because of you know, 10% or 100% better. And, and I mean, he was good to begin with, you know? So anyway, the thing is, like, a lot of guys, and even back then were losing it, but at least they had guys like Larry Homer, Chief Goodman, and Louise, me, and other people telling them stuff. I don't think anybody's teaching these days. No, they really aren't. In. I think they're mimicking their tr- the new artists of tw- the 2020s are mimicking the artists that they grew up with of the 90s and the 2000s, and those those artists didn't have the same training or maybe half the training, and so they don't have any of the training. So the comics look flat now. They don't have dynamics. They don't have presence. When somebody does a night scene, okay, they say, "Oh, it's night. Everything has to be dark," and so it's mud. You know, and I, I, I tell people, you know how Terminator 2 has a lot of scenes at night, T2? Yeah. Ever have any trouble seeing anything? Uh, no. You know, unless that's the story. Unless the story is that you can't make out the figure in the shadows. Then right. it's fine. It's part of the story. You know, but, but I mean, like, and that Klaus Chance was great. I mean, you know, one time he I did a word of Daredevil and... Nobody, people just forgot Daredevil was blind. Uh, I said, yeah, I gotta fix that. No, I mean, the writers would write him as if he could see, you know, ah. and, and, um, and, and Gil Kane would draw him as if he could see, like, yeah, but I'm movements, like a sighted person and stuff. And, uh, which some, some black people do if they got blind later in life. Sure. Like, uh, but anyway, the thing is, the thing is, um, so, uh, I just, I, I had this, all these guys attack Daredevil in this big room. What's the first thing he does? He kills the lights. He breaks the lights. So now it's dark. He can see, sort of, you know, radar sense. They can't. And and so there's like three or four pages of this battle in the dark. And Klaus just showing off. He did every technique you can do to show that it's dark, but you can still see what's going on. Like he did, you know, shades of blue. He did muted color. <laughs> he did, you know, I mean, it, it, no question. This is in a dark room perfectly clear you know so, so there are guys who do know what they're doing well yeah he understood but, uh, storytelling but i mean at this point klaus jansen he's considered old school he was around in the 80s and i don't know if he did work in the 70s yeah, but yeah well he were yeah yeah he started around when i did yeah, so, so he's considered a legend now and it's the new guys that really really need the education maybe it is important for you to write that book outlining all yeah well, that's stuff. what that's what that's what eric says he says he's got to get this stuff down before you die or something so okay you know? yeah i think it's really important it as well it's on the blog it's on the blog but I, a lot of it's on the blog but but yeah i'm gonna i'll uh, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. I just, I, <laughs> I don't have a deadline. I don't have a deadline and I don't, you know, I'm not killing myself these days. I mean, do you think uh, part of the reason that I think that comics didn't take off as a kind of like a art form in the same way as movies and music is because people didn't understand, not the people consuming it, but the some of the, most of the people creating it didn't understand that comic books are the combination or the marriage of art and literature. And we value art as humans. We value art. Think of the master artists and the masterpiece is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And we definitely value writing. Think of the great writers. We value poetry, but yet you combine yeah. those things into a comic book and somehow it's perceived as a lesser and, art form. Well, that was a lot of reasons of that, but the, but the, the thing is, is you're exactly right. This is a new language. We invented a new language. It's a verbal visual language and it, it's, it's more than just the words and it's more than just the pictures. And it, 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 the way that you use that language, the way you, you use that language to tell a story requires you to speak the language. <laughs> and so yeah, a lot of guys don't, they don't, they, 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 they draw pictures. They're just, you know, pictures that they want to draw and the right, you know, the writer will figure it out, you know, and, uh, uh sometimes the writer can't. I remember <laughs> Frank Miller, Frank Miller. I mean, I, the, the moment he got it, the moment he got it, he started out as a young, young guy, 19 years old, something like that. And, uh, and you know, he didn't, he didn't know. I mean, he, he like a lot of young artists um, who were looking at the art rather than caring about the story. Um, so a lot of his favorite artists were guys who did, you know, this, this shattered window pane panels and, and, you know, it was about, you know, it wasn't about the story at all. It was about, you know, page design and stuff like that. And, uh, and so when he, when he started working for that I told him, uh, for first the, uh, the first job he did, uh, I said, I have to see your layouts because your, your, your samples are all this weird panels and stuff. I said, so you have to show me layouts. So, so he showed me layouts. And I guess he was talking to Neil Adams and, and uh, he was telling him that uh, the editor at Marvel, I don't think he used my name because Neil would know better. Um, uh, the editor at Marvel told him you know, how he wanted the thing done. It was his first job. And Neil said, I ignore editors. They don't have anything. And so just do it your way, and they'll look at it and say, "Oh yeah, that's great," you know. And uh, and so so uh, uh, so he brings this thing in, and the layouts it's nothing like the layouts I approved. Look at this; it was a five-page job. And I said, "I said you didn't do what I asked you to do." He said, "Well, Neil told me." I'm like, "Neil, is he signing your check or am I?" You know, <laughs> and and. Uh, He's like, well, I, you know, but he, he was giving me advice. And you know, I, I said, Frank, I'll pay you for this, but we don't have anything for you. You know, to go back, go back to Vermont. And he, he said, give me another chance. Oh, wow. Uh, you could tell you had talent, but, you know, he just, you know, got misguided by Neil. And then, you know, Neil, look, not, not this and Neil. A lot of ninety-eight percent of the editors who tell you what they want don't know what they want, you know. So, because he worked with our director a lot of time, and they, you know, they didn't know. They just said stupid stuff, and then he'd do it right, and then it was fine. So it was kind of, you know, channeling that. Right. Talking to Frank, but but at any rate, so then Frank started doing. I made him do the grid. I made him do Kirby style. You know, not style. I mean Kirby 
like type the layout. storytelling. Yeah. Kirby type storytelling. You know, like the use the use the grid, you know, use the marks on the paper and kind of thinking about the story and and, and he every time he'd bring a job in before he took a theater, he'd bring it to me and show me and, and uh so I'd go through it and I'd say, Yeah, Frank, you got two guys talking in this panel. I said, next panel now there's a third guy. So was he here all along? Did he hear what he said? You know? And so I mean, all little things like that, you know. And I kept preaching, you know, storytelling. Tell the story. You know, like like think about it. Think you're communicating. Don't don't think rules. But they you know, guys have trouble getting over the thing that they think you're telling them rules. And so one day brings in a job and it was really good. And I looked through it and I guess he remembered all the rules or something. But the rules he made for himself. I kept telling him, No rules. There's no rules. You can do anything. You just have to know how to do it and I'll tell you how. And uh, so uh, he brings a job in and I'm looking through it. I said, nice job. He said, what do you mean, nice job? I said, it's good. He said, it is? I said, yeah. Oh. He starts thinking about it, you know, like all the stuff I said. Next day he comes in. He says, I got it. <laughs> he said, we're telling stories. We know the stories. They don't know the stories and we're telling them the story. And that doesn't sound too bright, but but I knew what he meant. That was a watershed moment for him. He finally got it. Oh yeah. What he what he meant was you see the story. When you think of a story, you see it as a little movie in your mind. Okay? You don't think of still pictures. You don't think of skipping from one still picture to the other. So when you're in the comic book business, your job is to make um, the audience see the same movie that you're seeing. Ah, I hope all the comic creators that are listening to this future yeah. and current and past are taking note of this because uh, I actually live near a, a professional comic book artist. He's not really working right now, but he, but he did. And I tried to give him some of your pointers that I've learned over the yeah. years. And uh, it seemed like it was Greek to him, you know, just like a complete story in each issue, like, you know, character always should be in costume if they're in costume on the cover just some of the rules that you had laid out over the years i tried to coach him on that and it, it seemed alien yeah well i think that like i said nobody's teaching stuff and then and, and the thing is you have to understand there are no rules i mean you can do anything but i mean uh, uh you know can you can you do a, 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 a trick shot can you can you can you have a like a lot of these guys they want to you know tilt the camera like like, like turning a steering you go up, down, sideways, all around. That's okay, but they want to do what they call a Dutch tilt in film, which is which is a picture like turning your film camera like a steering wheel. So now it's like at a forty-five degree angle, okay? And so that that would change the horizon. It makes the horizon tilted, okay? It's called a Dutch tilt. Okay. And a lot of guys want to do that because they think it makes it look more exciting. Yeah. And in fact, DC Com DC Comics used to insist that you do that. They had a page done by some artist. I can't remember his name. Spanish last name. And um, uh, they used to show this to people as a perfect page. Because the horizons are all tilted. There's one close-up. There's one long shot. There's one, you know. And I thought, No. The perfect page is the perfect page to tell the story that's on that page. And if it takes all panels that are just the same, then fine. Right. It's ex- that's what it takes. It's exclusive to the story and the moment and the feel of the story. You can't just yeah, put yeah, templates tell the story. on. Story first. And so, so anyway, uh, uh, you know, it's like, 
it's like you, you, there are not, there's nothing you can, I mean, I remember this, there's a shot where, uh, um, uh, you know, Kirby has, uh, uh, Captain America, um, he, he breaks into this, uh, store that sells sporting goods. He's really not Captain America. He's a bad guy. Okay. And he's being pursued by a human torch. And there's a, a guy there with the mopping bucket mopping up. Remember, it's a sporting goods store. And so uh, Captain America picks up like a archery bow, and he takes the wet mop and he uses it like an arrow. And when the torch comes in, he fires the arrow the mop at him, and the torch's flame is weak at this point. It puts it out. So to do that, Kirby he wanted to do that looking down the barrel kind of shot as he's firing the arrow. Right, you know, looking down the gun yeah. barrel. Yeah, that perspective. Shot, yes, looking looking at the target down the gun barrel, and okay. Now, if he had just shown him running into the store, and then shown that looking down the, uh, you know, the arrow shot towards the torch, nobody would have known what's going on. Everybody going, what? Huh? You know, what's this? So he had to do the setup shot. He shows the archery kit on the floor. He shows Captain America with the wet mop and the, and the bow. So now we know who it is, who's doing this, you know, and he, and he shows him like drawing the bow, I guess. Okay. And then he shows, then he does the dramatic looking down the barrel shot. No one has any trouble understanding it. So he set it up and then you can do anything. Right. As long as there's like some visual context, you can do the crazy stylized panels with the anything. Yeah. You want to make a slanty panel? Fine. You want to Kirby did panels where the torch was way up in the air, where he would do like an airplane banking feeling by tilting the horizon. It's not that you can't do it, but go to the movies. Spielberg never does it. Cameron never did it. Lucas doesn't do it. Almost no director does it unless there's a damn good reason. And I really like the airplane banking or another thing is somebody wakes up in a funny position and the world is kind of, you know, upside down sideways to them. Yeah. That or whatever. And you so say, you're so kind of looking for through their eyes and you're seeing things at an angle or whatever. That's why, I mean, it's just nothing you cannot do. And, 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 uh, but, um, most of these guys, it's almost like the computer guys. It's like they do stuff because they can, they don't, they're not thinking like, how is this going to help my story or hurt it? If you want to, I'll send you a couple of short things I wrote about this. I oh, yeah. Wrote them for oh, Pete, please feel free. I mean, really, any. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's a friend of mine that I went to high school with. Uh, uh, she uh, got in touch with me because, well, you know, she knew me from high school. And she has a granddaughter who's interested in comics and uh, uh, asked if I could, you know, help her. So I sent her some books, uh, not comic books, books about drawing and stuff. And uh, I also wrote a couple short pieces to explain stuff to her, and um, and it did, I think it helped her a lot. I, I, I didn't want to keep it short; didn't want to make it oppressive. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll sign up to you. You can see. Yeah, I'd love to see it. And really, anything that you feel like the Valiant fan community, or the Defiant fan community, or the Broadway fan community might think was interesting, feel free to email me old plots or anything that you feel like should yeah, get yeah. out to the people that love it. I mean, I'm happy to do that for you. Yeah, I did. By the way, I, t- I just uh, glanced at the computer here and I, I did script five issues of okay. that. Uh, you did sorry, do the five, five issues of script and, and one issue of plot. So that means it's Starland. So I guess we did this Marvel style. I thought it was interesting that Jim Starlin actually just went ahead and penciled and 
the whole series before you even had finished it, just based on the plots. Um, yeah, well, I gave him the plots. I mean, uh, I made him wait a couple times for plots and just yelling at me, but uh, uh, we're friends. But uh, the thing is, uh, uh, yeah, I got all six plots to him, and uh, I assume he got paid for drawing six books. Uh, I don't think he did. Uh, I got... Oh, well, I got paid for five scripts and, and, uh, and I don't think they were paying me separately for the plots. So, um, well, I'll tell you this, but anyway, I, I, I was just looking at it. I did the fifth script and, and then there was the sixth plot and it's too bad. Okay. Well, I'm looking at my copy of the downloaded unity 2000 plot and, and artwork. And I see a page by page plot of number five, but the, the actual character scripting, I don't think you released. If you want to send me that, let's get that out there because, uh, yeah, I'll send it to you. Yeah, sure. I'll send it. Yeah, it's, it's no problem. It, 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 it was, uh, I keep it on a little folder. So, right. Yeah. And, and really anything, Easily because you know, people want, well, uh, we'll see what comes up. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> want stuff. you but, know, there's, uh, there's such a rabid fan base for your valiant stuff and your defiant stuff that people just really attach to that. Because I remember that you wrote a, a letter to retailers, uh, around 1991, uh, in which you yeah. talked about how valiant wasn't like this independent company it was actually a new major. And you included with that letter, uh, like a print of the cover of shadow man, number one at the time. Yeah. And, and it seemed like, uh, that it really was like, it really was a new major. And that's why so many people are still attached to it. Even myself, I'm, I'm totally guilty. I'm a huge valiant fan. Um, so it's well, like, you know, the thing is the things you were saying, like why, you know, what happened, you know, why didn't this take off like other media and stuff like that? And, uh, the answer is, uh, there's several things. One that we've just been talking about, which is that the creators, you, you, you can pick up any novel, you can pick up, you watch any TV show, you can see any movie and you don't have any trouble understanding it. You can follow it, you, you know, right. but there are comic books you can pick up and stare at all day. You have no idea what's going on. Okay. Uh, and the story starts in the middle and ends in the middle. And it's not done in a way that you would do a continued story. There are ways. So, so there, that's one is the lack of craft, you know, and lack of teaching of the craft. Um, another one is greed. Because when I was at Marvel, when I took that job, the, the, the president of the company, I reported only to the president. Stan had no role in the comics except that he was Stan, and I asked him his opinion all the time. Um, but uh, when he, I took that job, the president said, you're here to preside over the death of Marvel Comics. Try not to lose too much money. Oh. I said, you're so wrong. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He said he was going to get us out of comics which he saw as a total loser and uh, yes, yeah, children's books and animation. And I was just supposed to not lose too much money until he got that done. So and, the greed uh, was another component. <clears throat> right. I said, I said, I said, I said, look, I said, you're so wrong. We're going to be bigger than Disney. I said, we're a long way from there, uh, but we can start. And he said, I don't care what you do, do anything you want. Just, you know, self-liquidating doesn't lose a lot, makes money. Go ahead. Yeah. So that's why I had a free hand. Now, the thing is, we were on our way. We, we took it and turned it around. Sales were crashing. We turned it around. And we helped the direct market grow, and he helped us grow. And, and, and it was getting bigger and bigger. 
And if they, if these greedy assholes <laughs> hadn't kind of pulled the plug on us and said, oh, let's, let's cash out now. It's probably just a fad. You know, let's get out while we're getting as good. So they got greedy and, and ended up getting, you know, driving me away and, and kind of, and look where it is now. You know, like you said, some comics sell 10,000 copies. Okay. Oh, it's atrociously yeah. bad. I mean, it's just, it's depressing yeah. if you think about the height of the comic book industry and then you think about where we're at now. It's, it's, it's really sad. Same with, same with Valiant. I mean, we struggled for a year and a half and then finally we're getting traction. Things are selling. We're, now we have money. We can get better art, better artists. We can get, you know, writers. You know, we or Roger Stern. Actually, Roger did work for me. But at any rate, I mean, like we were on the edge of taking off and maybe making it back into a mass market business again, you know, and, and upgrading the whole creative quality and, and, and making it happen. And greedy people said, oh, sell it now. You know? So, I mean, like there's the greed thing, there's the lack of craft, the lack of teaching of craft. And then, uh, uh, the other thing is, is that, uh, we, we have always, uh, thought of thought of ourselves as small time and i don't think that i think i think that this this is there's there's such power in this medium it's an eyes only medium real personal direct uh, relationship with what you're taking in okay take it at your own pace only visual medium you take at your own pace unless you count stereoscopes or something take it at your own pace it's not being fed to you you take it at your own pace Eyes only, total focus. Superman's voice never sounds wrong. The cape always blows the right way. Every image can be iconic. You know, uh, if you do a movie sooner or later, Superman's going to sit down and have his butt sticking out and look funny. Right. But, uh, but, you know, in the comics, like you look at Frank Miller stuff, every panel tells you exactly what he wants you to know. And he does it with iconic power. And that's because he got it. You know, and so few guys do. You know, there's a lot of guys who are pretty good but not enough Millers and uh, certainly not enough um, But, you know, but, there, uh, are, anyway. there are people still in love with comics. There are even kids that love comics, even though it's, like we've talked about, the market has dwindled so much. But I was lucky enough to participate in the How to Create Comics Seminar 1994 with you oh, in Florida. I was very lucky to do that. And also, at least as a kid, it seemed mind blowing. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and then I wanted to be a comic book writer, sent out scripts. I did get a rejection letter from defiant that I kept for many years, but unfortunately that got lost. But if you were to give current writers, somebody that was interested in becoming a comic book writer now, outside of all the advice that we've talked about over the last three or almost four hours, what would you tell them specifically to help them stay focused and stay motivated and do their best work? Well, I know the, the first thing is learn your craft. Everybody can write an English sentence, thinks they can write. No, that's like think, saying you could be a dentist because you have teeth. If you have to learn your craft, it's not, it's not just, you know, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of guys, very good guys. Neil Gaiman, for instance. Neil Gaiman is an instinctive player. He can do it. He does it well. He's very good, you know? 
but he can't explain to you anything. <laughs> he does He cannot possibly tell you how he does it because he, he does it kind of by feel. All right. I have a couple of things that he, he wrote, which I occasionally use for, uh, in my writing lecture. Uh, one of them is uh, people ask me how to write. This is how you do it. You sit down and you put one word behind the other until you're done. Well, gee, thanks, Neil. That helps a lot. <laughs> you know, and he, and he says a lot of stuff like That's that. That's a very it's British like, thing to say, to be honest. Yeah, come on, Neil. You know, and, and I went actually went to one of his writing classes once. I thought, well, let's see what he has to say. He's good. Went there, and basically the only thing I, that was useful in the whole thing, which I, I don't know how you don't already know this, but he said at the end of each page, you have something that makes them turn the page. Okay. And, and you know, other than that, basically the whole lecture was right like me. I never tell anybody right like me. But but that's because he can't explain what he does. He's well, do, do it this way. Stan was an instinctive player because he couldn't. He knew what's right, he knew it was wrong, and he would tell you do it like this. Everything you know, he wouldn't just say right like me. He'd say do it like this, and okay. you'd understand. Especially because I had training from Mort, and I did a lot of studying on my own. I would say, oh, this is what he means, you know, and I I you know fill in the uh, the missing. Uh, logic. I mean, because he nobody can say Stan didn't know his doing. I learned so much from him. Right. But uh, but 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 he wasn't the best. He wasn't an analyst uh, like Archie Goodwin. Archie Goodwin could tell you he could do it. He could tell you what he was doing, why he was doing, and how to do it in vivid detail. I mean, there was nothing accidental happened on that paper when Archie was writing. So the and craft, so, uh, the craft is so yeah, important the for these new guys. Yeah. So, so I think it comes down to, you know, like learn your craft, uh, uh, to, to avoid, you know, greedy jerks and, uh, and, uh, have some self-esteem. This doesn't have to be small. We, we can be bigger than Disney. Yeah. Does, I mean, I bet it's pretty, speaking of Disney, is it weird for you that being in the industry for so long and, having contacts with all these different companies that now Disney owns Marvel. They own uh, star Wars and Lucas film. They own, the I Muppets. believe they, they bought classic media as well. Yeah. Uh, I think so. The Muppet, right. Yeah. Is that, is that mind blowing for you now? Like yeah, all under this mean, one like, wing. When I was talking to Golden, I said, we can be bigger than Disney. And he said, Oh, baloney could never happen. And I didn't anticipate that Disney would buy Marvel. But but uh, but for three three point three billion dollars. I know it's mind blowing. And uh, you know it's like when when we were you know back then I don't know what the thing was worth not much. Even when I went to buy it, it went for eighty two and a half million dollars. Right. And uh, you know, uh, but I tried to buy it another time too when it was in bankruptcy. But even even in bankruptcy, it was worth billions probably one point something. So wait, let me touch on that a little bit. I don't think I've ever heard that before. You (laughs) tried to buy Marvel during their bankruptcy at the end of the nineties. Yeah. What happened was they were going bankrupt and I'd been told by Dick Snyder that, you know, they're going to close Broadway and, um, I actually got a call from uh, Bill Bevins and Bill Bevins was the CEO of the company that, uh, owned Marvel, which was owned by Perlman. Okay. Um, 
okay, so so he, he, he uh, you know, after hello, he says, can you fix this? And I said, yeah, I can fix it. And um, he said, come up to my office. I said, all right. So I would go up to house just off Madison Avenue and everything. And uh, I didn't drive. I took a cab up there and went to see him. And we talked about it. And, uh, and uh, just general conversation about me, what I would do. And, um, and he said, all right, I'm going to need a couple of weeks to work this out. And he said, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be in touch. But within a week, they went bankrupt other than your miss. <sighs> um, yeah. So, so anyway, so now it's bankrupt. And, and also I'm, I, I get paid, I think for a couple extra months, like severance or something, but, but then I'm, I'm looking for a gig. So there was another so, chance that you could have had Marvel, man. There's so many alternate yeah. realities. You know, you're the always a person that always talks about the multiverse in your comics and, yeah. and alternate realities. There's an alternate reality where you bought Marvel in the eighties. There's an alternate reality where you bought Marvel in the nineties. There's an alternate reality where you stayed with Valiant. We're able to buy it. And it's a huge comic book publisher. We're just not in that yeah. reality. <laughs> yeah. Well, the second, the, the second try was, it was in bankruptcy. And I, I knew that nobody was going to put up one point something billion for a guy with a high school education. So, uh, so I got a couple of ex cap cities, ABC executives, each of whom had run billion dollar units of cap cities, ABC. Okay. And, and I made a deal with them. I said, you guys handle the media. I'll do everything else. And they said, done. You know, so we're going to be partners. And uh, I had a, great investment banking company, McFarland and Dewey, and they were helping me. And we had a meeting with Perry Capital, which specializes in these distressed sale bankruptcy things. They were going to be the equity partner, probably have to put up some hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, that was no problem for them. Um, and uh, they asked me, like, uh, said, well, who can we get as a, as a, a, a debt partner? I said, well, we could, we could call Chase. And he said, well, who do you know Chase? I said, Tom Reifenheiser. And he said, you don't know Breifenheiser. I said, yes. okay, let's try it. He's the head of me. He was the head of media and entertainment for Chase Bank. And so called him up on the speakerphone, get his secretary. He says, Jim Shooter, I'd like to speak with Tom. She says, oh, yes, right away. And sure enough, he gets on the phone. What can I do for you? <laughs> and I said, this is what I got going. Explain Cap Cities, Perry, you know, whole thing. And Marvel and bankruptcy. And he said, he said, uh, he did, we didn't even talk about it. He said, you can count on our support. Oh, wow. So we went and we researched it. I mean, they had a document room set up, I think it was in Jersey City, at their lawyer's office. And uh, so we went there and went through the documents and stuff, found out a lot of interesting information. But we also found out that there was a just giant stack of contingent liabilities because Marvel was suing Toybiz, Toybiz was suing Marvel, and they each owned each other's stock, and it was a nightmare. And so, uh, so one of the guys says, says, you'd have to buy them both. And then the other guy says to me, he says, can you run a toy company? I said, no, I know a lot about toys, but no, I don't think I can write a toy company. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, let's get a toy company partner. And I called Jill Barad at, Mat at Mattel. I said, this is where I got going, you know, when, you know, cause you, you need boy size, you know? Right. And she said, she said, I'll send my, I'll send my, uh, Business Affairs VP, and he he did, and he came, and he looked at the documents, and uh, he said, 
why don't we just let it collapse and pick up the pieces? And I said, because it's not going to collapse. They're both in bankruptcy. The trustee's going to merge them and give them Chapter 7 until they something good happens. And that's exactly what happened. And the good thing that happened was the movie started, and they started making, making money. So, you know, I mean, I tried twice, you know. Yeah. Strike two. Yeah, well, like I said, there's an alternate reality where, you know, you're, yeah. you're there. We're just uh, not in it, but... Man, Jim, this has been an incredible odyssey, (laughs) you know, four hours of really in-depth questions, so many incredible stories. I'm so honored and grateful to share this with you. I hope you edit this down to something reasonable. Yeah, 25 minutes. Yeah, you know, it's... That's good. (laughs) No, no, this all has to be released. (laughs) This is... Every second was... Every second of it was very valuable information well, listen listen if you ever want to talk again i, I don't mind it, it's fun so yeah yeah i don't want these stories to be lost i mean i'm sure you have another 30 years or so of life left but uh you know you, you do have a treasure trove of stories uh in your mind yeah this uh, it was spent how many years now let's see so uh about 56 years that's well thank you so much for everything jim hold on the line through the outro music and we're going to talk a little bit more everybody you just witnessed our longest podcast with one of my personal heroes i'm so honored and excited this has been a great moment for me thank you for joining us i appreciate it we'll see you next week midnight on earth